Hello, everyone. Welcome to Talk the Walk with the Boss Rush Network. I don't know where Eddie V could be. Maybe he went somewhere related to the game that we're going to be talking about, which I, I really hope he didn't because that would not be good. But joining me today is Christian from the Franchise Festival. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you were actually on one of our episodes with your friends, Hamilton and Spencer, who also co-host the Franchise Festival podcast. And I interviewed y'all for the 1v1 series about sure a year ago. Yeah, so yeah, almost exactly a year ago. So would you like to tell listeners a little bit about Franchise Festival? Oh, sure. Yeah, a lot's happened in a year. Uh, we cover uh, noteworthy video game series from the last 40 years. We do it uh, each season is a franchise, hence the name. So the first season that we uh, did was Legend of Zelda. We covered that from uh, January 2020 to about June 2021. And then we moved on to Resident Evil, which we've been covering for the last year and are going to be wrapping up, I think, this December, December 2022. We don't know what we're going to cover for season three yet. We, we've been having feverish discussions about it. But uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of fun discussing the history of how those got made, as well as walking through like the plot and gameplay. We try to make it uh, just as appealing for somebody who hasn't played the game as somebody who has. And we've gotten some good feedback on that. And I can attest, because I'm a listener and a patron of theirs, that... <laughs> They are very thorough episodes. They cover the gameplay. They cover the history of the game, the making of the game, the setting, the story, the lore. I believe Hamilton's our lore guy. He right? is. We're, we're really blessed with having um, three very different specializations represented on the show. Uh, I, I'm kind of the nuts and bolts. Uh, how did this get made guy? Uh, Spencer is just has a mind like a trap for gameplay details. I don't know how he does it, uh, but he, he can relate them in such a way that it makes sense even if I've never played a game. And then Hamilton, yeah, is our lore guy. He, he gets really into the nitty-gritty of uh, the storyline. And I love that. That's, that's just kismet right there. They it is. All... We're so lucky, yeah. <laughs> well, I know that you are a big fan of history as well. And, oh, yeah. I, and I'm really happy you reached out to me because Eddie and I like to have at least one other person, no more than about four, for these Talk the Walk episodes, which if this is your first time listening, we're a podcast, part of the Boss Rush Network, where we talk about walking simulators. And we've also delved into visual novels, where I joke that we're taking a break from walking so much to sit down and read, quote unquote. <laughs> a reading simulator. <laughs> That's a reading simulator. Read the walk. Read talk the walk. Read. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And I put out a call on Twitter, is anybody interested in discussing Sagebrush? And Chris reached out to me saying, oh, yeah, I have that game, and I've been meaning to play it, and this will be mm -hmm. the impetus to play it. Yep. I'm so excited. Okay. Yeah, I've been looking forward to, uh, to, to playing this for quite a while. Uh, I'd heard such good things about it, and it's on the Switch. So um, I had had a copy of, of that from a sale a while back and had just been looking for a reason to play it, and this came at the right time. Okay, so you played it on the Switch. I sure did, yeah. Okay. I played it on PS4, so, hmm, I'm, I'm curious if we had any differences in that. I wonder that myself. Uh, the performance on the Switch is broadly very good, and it scales well. It's not one of those games that has tiny text, so it scales well to playing portably as well. Um, it, it doesn't have a ton of audio, so if you play it, uh, the main thing that you'd miss playing it without, uh, you know, headphones in or that sort of thing portably is... Uh, like the voiceover, but they're they're pretty spare. The one thing that I do wonder, though, 
is switch. Uh, I guess the frame rate is kind of maybe around like 30 frames per second. And I did wonder if it ran a little smoother on the PS4. But even as somebody who has trouble with motion sickness at low frame rates, this never gave it to me. So I, I think it's a good fit okay. for that platform. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know. It's also, I have actually everything listed, but I don't even mm -hmm. know if I said the game. We've been jumping into conversations. <laughs> yeah. In fact, poor, poor, poor Christian and I were actually talking for about half an hour about life <laughs> in general. I didn't realize it had been that long. We were, yeah, we were in the green room, green room for a minute. Wow. We just get along so well and have Indeed. so much to talk about. And I, I would love to meet up with all my internet friends in real life one day. <laughs> Wouldn't that it would be, be nice? awesome. Hey, y'all, you want to um, go grab some coffee this evening? <laughs> exactly. Something like that. But we were talking about Sagebrush, and this game, as Christian called it, before we um, started discussing it, was uh, Trigger Warning the Game. Mm -hmm. So we want to let you know that this game does deal with religious suicide, cultism, sexual abuse, and murders. So if any of those topics... Um, make you very uncomfortable. I don't recommend listening to this episode or maybe come back to it later if you've played mm -hmm. the game and you feel more comfortable. So Chris, do you have a fascination with cults? Strangely enough, I don't. I feel like I'm the only person in the world who doesn't, uh, which makes me kind of a funny fit for this this uh, game, I guess. I, I'm as interested in them as the average person is, right? Like it, it's like a lot of... Um, a lot of things where there's kind of like a uh, like an, an insular uh, community or a compulsion or that sort of thing. Like it, it reminds me of uh, it, like there's a lot of human psychology tied up in it, right? And so I think of like sort of the same things that that happen with substance abuse. Uh, their cults are psychologically interesting insofar as uh, they they act on uh, act on people's kind of weakest moments sometimes and just take advantage of people which is uh very unfortunate and grim and as you know as as a, a person who's really interested in history myself i think it's interesting just how consistent they have been across time and space uh like the these little cults have popped up all the way since you know uh, the the written record exists so uh there, there is something about our nature uh, that makes us inclined in that direction. And, and so, yeah, I, I have an interest, but maybe not a fascination. So are you someone who seeks out the documentaries or anything about certain cults? I specifically avoid them. Really? Oh, is <laughs> it because they're nervous. Like, they, they make, make me you nervous. nervous. Yeah, something about cults just, uh, I don't know, like, they, they creep me out, you know? And I guess I guess it stands to reason they're, they're a scary subject. But um, it's kind of like true crime to me. Mm -hmm. I tend to avoid true crime. I, I'm a news junkie, so I, I'm really tied into um, like news and an awareness of current events. And so a lot of the time in my like recreation time, I tend to favor things that are a little more fantastical. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I broadly uh, those cult documentaries as good as I have heard they are. Uh, where where do you fall on these, Celeste? I haven't watched any in a little while, but um, I. It is fascinating. I, I do find cults fascinating for the psychological reasons mm -hmm. that you named, and it, the patterns are all very similar, right? Yep. It's they usually prey on people who feel like they're missing something in their lives, or exactly. people who need help do not have a strong connection with other people usually. But mm -hmm. 
and we will see in Sagebrush, there are a variety of personalities who joined this cult. And that's why yes. I made a, a bit of a tongue in cheek joke that Eddie is not with us today. And I hope it's not for the reason of joining a cult, <laughs> <laughs> the cult of work, unfortunately. For him. Uh-huh. Yeah. The, the cult that has us all wrapped around its finger. Yes, and uh, one day I hope to get out. (laughs) (laughs) One day, one day. But I do like watching documentaries whenever I have the chance and reading about Mm -hmm. them. Um, I just haven't, not because I haven't wanted to, I just haven't um, come across any yet. But a few years ago, uh, my boyfriend and I did watch one on Jonestown, which I'm sure you're familiar with. That's a big one. Yeah, one of the most famous ones. I believe that's where the old uh, like Kool-Aid references come from was, was the uh, the Jonestown incident. Yeah. Correct. And did you know that that's actually inaccurate because they apparently drained flank, drank, um, flavor aid? It something? was flavor aid. Yeah, yeah. Poor The poor Kool-Aid man caught all the heat from that. And uh, he wasn't even there, you know? That one, yes. So let's, let's get started with uh, Sagebrush, a little background. So... Mm-hmm. I came across this game because my boyfriend said, hey, you like cults? (laughs) (laughs) And I found this game on the PlayStation that you might like. It's called Sagebrush. And I played it a few years ago. It's a very short game. You can complete it in about, it says 60 minutes to 120 minutes, but I'm someone who likes to read everything. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I have to put a game down to go take care of real life things. I think it took me about, maybe three hours how long did it take you chris that's about the same for me i was going to say about two and a half uh but then last night i finished it up and and the little the final act of it took longer than i was expecting so i'd say about three hours in the end yeah it's it's a short game though Mm -hmm. and if you watch let's plays of it some people complete it in about an hour 15 minutes it's a good game for a let's play too like it's a narrative first yeah yes so uh, that's that's a good question so if if you are watching a Let's Play, do you prefer commentary or do you prefer no commentary? It depends on the purpose that I'm watching it for, truth be told. If I if I want something kind of uh, like if I want something on in the background on like a Friday evening and I'm just sitting around playing a game and my wife and I don't have anything else to watch, I like a Let's Play with commentary. Mm-hmm. But if I'm watching one for research uh, for a podcast or to get kind of the balance of a game, uh, that maybe I, I'm interested in, but don't want to play myself. I tend to prefer them without commentary. Yes, that's that's exactly how I feel. I I needed to watch a let's play of this to help refresh my memory mm-hmm. of this game and to help me remember certain. Hey, I, I I remember this certain segment. Let me hurry up and go to this so I don't have to load up the game and try to remember where it was. So I do enjoy right. the lack of commentary. And like you said, this game is so narrative that it's perfect perfect for that. Mm-hmm. It, And so this game was developed by Redact Games. And what's interesting about this is it was the sole project of Nathaniel slash Nate Behrens, an indie developer from Michigan. This is an ambitious project, and I I applaud him. It really is. So he he did all of, I guess, all of it then, like the the visuals and the uh, the story and, and everything. Yeah, and while I was eating breakfast this morning, I was reading an inter- a written interview with him where he's talking about the entire process, and I can send it to you after this if you're yeah, if I'd be like curious to read, to read it. it. Yeah, he he's a video producer at a college by day, and he hmm. was using his nights and weekends to make this game in a year and a half. What? Wow! What a treat! Like that. 
I feel lucky for him having had the the inclination to do that. That I'm sure that took so much work. And I'm looking him up on uh, itch.io right now. Mm-hmm. He's got maybe six or seven other games as well. Uh, they look a little, they look kind of slimmer mm-hmm. uh, than Sagebrush. Um, but it looks like he actually, he contributed something to the haunted PS1 uh, demo disc, which I don't know if you've encountered that, but that's a hoot and a half. I have, I have not. Is that a scary game? Yes, it's, um, I mean, they're, they're varying levels of horror, but it's, uh, they must be on their third one right now, but it's, um, and it makes sense with how Sagebrush looks, as, as I'm sure we'll get around to, but uh, they're, they're these kind of lo-fi uh, games made in the style of like the 32-bit era, like the, the PlayStation 1, um, and I guess just about every year, I think it's on a pretty annual basis, uh, whoever the central figure in this is uh, will collect maybe uh, nine to 12 of these little bite-size uh, quote-unquote games. Sometimes they're demos of larger things. Sometimes they're just standalone experimental bits. They're all united by that lo-fi aesthetic and uh, horror, though the, the kind of horror that they are differs. Sometimes they're like a survival horror Resident Evil style game, or sometimes I played one that was like a it was like a riff on Tony Hawk, but it was very unsettling. And, um, you know, it was set in like a downtown area at night and it just got darker and darker as you skateboarded around. Uh, they're just these very experimental, strange little projects. Um, and, and so it looks like uh, looks like Redact Games contributed uh, to one of them. Good for you, Nate. I would love to. I think <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to reach out to him to interview him if he's. <laughs> Please do. I would love to hear more from this guy. He's got quite a CV there. Uh, it's fascinating. And I, I love seeing people challenge themselves because mm-hmm. he said that his strengths lie in the story writing and the more technical aspects were his biggest hurdle, which is probably, yeah. I think he mentioned in the interview that that is why he chose to do the lo-fi poly for this game. But you can get, yeah. sorry. Oh, you wanted to say anything about the graphics Chris oh I just I thought it ended up being a really nice choice like it's interesting that it was a matter of expediency for him because Mm -hmm. it it I think it ends up contributing to the feel of the project I think doing this in a different visual style wouldn't be as effective I agree and you can play this game on Nintendo Switch PlayStation 4 Xbox One Microsoft Windows Linux Macintosh operating systems this game was released September 18th 2018 and here's a summary from the website for it. Sagebrush is a first-person narrative adventure about exploring the compound of an apocalyptic millenniumist cult in remote New Mexico years after they collectively took their lives in a mass suicide event. In Sagebrush, you'll investigate the long-abandoned Black Sage Ranch, the former home of Perfect Heaven, an apocalyptic cult formed in the early 1990s under the guiding hand of the prophet Father James. So this game was also inspired by real-world apocalyptic cults. Mm-hmm. He did extensive research into cult groups, both famous and obscure, large and small. And his goal was to make sure he really made you feel like you understood the characters and that they were more complex than just, oh, um, I'm super religious or right. I'm... Gosh, I loved it. They He avoids simplistic motivations and easy answers in this game. The members of the flock, which is what the cult members are called, the flock, mm. um, they are diverse and complex people with varied needs, hopes, and fears. So which cults did you think of while you were playing this game? My mind immediately went to um, 
which is the one that was in uh, uh, Guyana? Was that Heaven's Gate? Oh, that is Jonestown. That was Jonestown. Okay, I always get Heaven's Gate and Jonestown mixed up. Yeah, Jonestown was the one that I that I first went to. Um, obviously, this this ended up having a more inwardly directed uh, self destruction as opposed to Jonestown, which you know harmed people outside of the cult as well. Mm -hmm. But um, that was just what my mind first went to. Yeah, and Heaven's Gate is another one I thought of, mm -hmm. which um, we didn't talk about that one too much, but. I believe that one happened in the U.S. Yeah. And, it, it, gosh, um, I'm going to, I don't remember the name it's of the leader. hard to keep them straight. Yes, yes. Yeah. It was, I believe that was in the 80s or 90s, and the members did commit mass suicide, but they all yes. wore these jogging suits, these identical jogging suits. Okay, yeah, I, I remember that. That really tarnished, um, I want to say... Uh, it might have been the the tennis shoes in particular that they wore. I want to say were um, were a particular company, and it kind of tarnished that company's name for years. Strangely oh, enough, yes. even though obviously they hadn't <laughs> had any specific connection to it, but they didn't supply them. No, no, yeah, they didn't have some like they didn't have some agreement with the uh, the Heaven's Gate cult. <laughs> which I which I think it's interesting that they chose the name Perfect Heaven for the name of this cult. It's probably a play on heaven's gate it must be yeah mm -hmm. that's what i thought of when i when i saw that they were called perfect heaven i thought heaven's gate exactly now another one i thought of either yesterday or today with um as you'll see later in the game there are a lot of weapons mm -hmm. branch davidians in waco yep. texas that exactly yeah that that was the one that that had the the big uh, fbi raid i think in the end wasn't it it's i can't Gosh, I was reading about, they have a, a series, speaking of, I need to watch it. There's one called, there's a series called Waco, which deals uh -huh. with this, which I haven't watched yet. David Koresh was the leader. Yep. And it was this compound in Waco, Texas. And I don't know if it was the FBI or the Department of Alcohol. Fire. Yes, I what think you're ATF, called? Alcohol, ATF. Tobacco, and Firearms. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Yes. I think it may have been the ATF that that ended up raiding it, and it was, it was a real disaster. You know, they they had one of those. Uh, there, there's an overlap between kind of militia groups and cult groups, and like, they're sometimes separate, but there's a Venn diagram overlap there, uh, and so Waco was one of those examples where there was a pretty big overlap. Yes. Um, that's an interesting one because usually with cults, it's like, okay, the cult is the bad guy and um, everyone else who's trying to help the cult members, they are all mm -hmm. good guys. But Waco, mm -hmm. there's a lot of gray area with that one. Exactly. Um, some people yeah. say that, uh, I think, I think that David Koresh was accused of sleeping with minors and grooming them. That was a mm -hmm. big deal. But then the um, the government really didn't have proof or sufficient proof, so some people say that the government overstepped, and I think they died by fire. Yeah, um, I, I there, I guess again, kind of to bring it back here to Sagebrush, there there is a big uh, kind of uh, uh, it feels like he's definitely pulling from from Waco as well, and and the time frame fits as well. You know, Waco mm -hmm. occurred in in the mid 1990s, and this game is set in the mid 1990s. Although, yeah, I, I think there is still some lack of clarity around exactly, don't don't quote me on this, listeners, you know, <laughs> uh, research this yourselves. Uh, but I, I do recall that there was some lack of clarity around how exactly that fire got started, whether it was mm -hmm. uh, through the direct actions of the ATF or through 
like a, a self-destructive uh, attack by the Branch Davidians inside the compound. And, and so there's there's a lot of gray and uh, kind of questions still surrounding that. But it, it was a pretty big scandal for uh, for the government at the time. Yes. And I believe Ruby Ridge is related to that. Is that correct? I don't recognize that name. Oh, gosh. And um, of course, now that I'm on the spot, I'm blanking. My mind is blanking. <laughs> Isn't that the that, way? I don't. Gosh. Um, so, Christian, I am 33. I think you're you're of that same age group. I'm 34. Yeah. Okay. How about that? Yeah. I believe when I was reading about Waco, Texas, mm -hmm. that in the Ruby Ridge incident inspired the Oklahoma City bombing. I know Waco played a role in the Oklahoma City bombing. Yeah, that that was part of, uh, oh, what's his name's uh, Timothy manifesto? Ma Timothy yeah, Timothy McVeigh. McVeigh. Sure enough, that's his name. So you remember that name. Like, I remember hearing, I mean, I was a very young child, but I remember yeah. hearing my parents talking about that. Yeah, it's funny what sticks around in your mind from when, you, when you're young. Yeah, the, the, like seeing the things like on the news or hearing your parents talk about them. But yeah, Waco really was was a big kind of name that, that kicked around in our youth for sure. Yes, yes. So uh, Ruby Ridge, um, I, I say go research it because I don't want to. It, has, it was some. It was another incident where were the individuals innocent and was the government overstepping? You know? Oh, okay, interesting. Yeah. yeah. So hmm. I'll leave it at that. But uh, like we were talking about with the graphics earlier, this is an immersive lo-fi 3D world. Mm -hmm. uh, according to the website, Sagebrush features an evocative low-poly, low-resolution, less-is-more art style that combines retro aesthetics with modern technology, along with a fully realized soundscape and an original ambient musical score that immerses you in the remote New Mexico desert. And I love the score. Celeste, we we do not totally agree on that. that <gasps> oh, um, really? I ran real hot and cold on the score in this. I like I like the cricket, you know, like the the kind of ambient noises, but I really wanted this to have some more music or something. Like I, I wanted there to be just a little bit more. Uh, uh, I, I can I can see a scenario. I don't know if you've ever played Into the Breach, but that has one of those kind of like like sort of Stranger Things kind of synthy soundtracks, and I feel like there would have been room for kind of like an eerie synthy soundtrack here. Um. It, you can't ask a game to not be what it's set out to be, right? So I, I, I wouldn't criticize it for that. But yeah, I wanted just a little bit more. And they had like the record playing at one point, and mm -hmm. that was great. And I wanted a little bit more of that. Uh, but but you say you really liked it. What what did you enjoy about the soundtrack? So I, I like that kind of synth, the, um, the anticipation. It mm -hmm. kind of builds up like, what am I about to get myself into? And I did like that it would go away and then music would pick up after certain moments in the game. Mm -hmm. It really punctuates the events well. You're right. Yeah. And I guess because I'm thinking I'm by myself and exploring this compound, not having music made it more realistic to me. It probably, truth be told, yeah, I, I think I think my interest in having a larger amount of audio probably reflects more on me. I think the choice that they made for the game was the artistically correct choice. Like it, it contributes no to the answer. sense of like, right, yeah, it's art, right? But um, yeah, I, I think I, I actually do agree with what you're saying. I think uh, the sense of isolation is enhanced through the lack of music. But I do love a good synth, so... Mm -hmm. Maybe if he wants to make uh, like a master deluxe <laughs> edition yes. of Sagebrush, maybe Nate will listen to this episode and be like, oh, 
that Chris guy's onto something. Yeah. I'm going to do this. Sagebrush remastered with uh, with all HD textures and a constantly <laughs> blaring, uh, let's say, a horn section. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and so, like we said, this is a compound. You have a whole compound to explore. Um, it's at Black Sage Ranch. There are trailers. There are halls where they gather for food and prayer. There are old mines. And there's also a chapel. Mm-hmm. So let's... Uh, I'm sure most people listening know what a cult is, but I like to define things because if you ever do that, like you think you know a word really well, and then you go look it up in the dictionary, and you're thinking there's a little bit more to it than I than I realized. This just happened to me the other day, and I wish I could remember what word it was, but there was a word that I thought I knew the meaning of that when I looked it up, I actually had it completely wrong. And I say this as an English major, you know, and, and I, <laughs> An avid crossword puzzler, but um, yeah, I, I found out. Yeah, every once in a while you think you know something and then, you know, it, it's a good reminder that you don't know as much as you think you do. And our brains get old. Oof, yeah, <laughs> sad but true. So a cult is a religion or religious sect generally considered to be extremist or false with its followers often living in an unconventional manner under the guidance of an authoritarian charismatic leader. That's a and great definition. It is. And I think the authoritarian charismatic leader part is huge. You cannot be a pushover and lead a cult. I'm so sorry if that was your career ambition and we just <laughs> shattered your dreams. You have to be a special kind of person. In some ways, the authoritarian charismatic leader is just, to my mind, the defining feature of what separates a cult from, I, I don't know, like I. I, I'm a practicing Catholic, so, you know, I, I, I'm not somebody who's, like, down on religion inherently. Um, but there is, like, you look for, there's such a, a similarity between, like, a religion and a cult, right? And so there's there's always those kinds of discussions about what separates them. And I feel like that authoritarian, charismatic leader is really crucial because religious groups, as a rule, tend to have some kind of institutional uh, background and foundation, uh, even even if they're new. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like you, you look at, uh, religious organizations founded just in the last like 150 years, like, uh, like the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, uh, that sort of thing. You know, there, there are religious groups who often are founded with a charismatic leader, but in some ways, the difference between, I think, a cult and a religious group sometimes early on is that the religious group has more broad, uh, buy-in and, um, complexity and the cult is basically uh, focused on that personality. It exists kind of under yes. and in support of a person as opposed to an idea. That's a great summary and comparison, Christian. Thank you for that. Because a lot of, I, I've come across these articles online. Well, is a religion a cult essentially? Right. And the first thing that comes into my mind, and in this game, there's actually a pamphlet of, are you in a cult? That, <laughs> yeah. Which is very helpful if you read it and you're like, and you start questioning yourself, maybe maybe examine your life a little bit, but yeah, it's a good pamphlet. <laughs> but when I, whenever I think of the comparison, I think a big factor is, can you leave without severe consequences? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a good point. Um, and one of the things that I think is interesting about this is that you can always think of exceptions, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, like with the authoritarian leader, not authoritarian, but charismatic leader, I immediately thought of like, well, shucks, like, uh, you know, Christianity was founded by a charismatic leader, Jesus. Islam was founded by a charismatic leader, the prophet Muhammad. Uh, Latter-day Saints were founded by a charismatic leader, uh, Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith, I want to say. Or 
Yes, and then Brigham Young. Yes, 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 and then Brigham Young. Yeah, kind of succeeded him. Um, and so you know, th- I think of those exceptions, and then I think with like the ease of leaving, I think of um, you know, certainly not, not to get too grim, but you know, things like honor killings among uh folks who try to leave like mm-hmm. a, a tight knit religion, like a, a more well founded religious community, or um, you know, like the shunning that can happen. For example, if you leave like an Amish community, mm-hmm. and like you wouldn't think of the Amish as a cult, but the harm that is done to a person who tries to leave, even on like kind of a uh, psychological social level there's less often a, a direct physical harm i guess among leaving a religious group as opposed to a cult i think this game just brought up more real life questions because... <laughs> it does it's a puzzler yeah it's a puzzler for sure Th- this is a thorny subject i think that's part of why the game works so well it is and so i was raised catholic um yeah i don't i don't practice anymore right. but it's so ingrained in my culture where i live that you don't even have to be Catholic and it's, it affects certain laws, certain of course. just ways of life. So that's, gosh, that's fascinating. <laughs> it's it's an interesting, so yeah, the, the line between cult and religion is like, it's inherently a bit blurry, but yeah, I, I feel like what I like about this definition is that it kind of combines a lot of those things that like, you know, a, a lot of religions will have like some kind of exception to this, uh, this definition, but this definition really kind of captures if points A, B, C, and D are all true, it's probably a cult. Oh, we got we got very deep. But this game, I think, which which is the beauty of this game, right? Because exactly. it it brings up so many real life talking points. Mm-hmm. And oh gosh, makes you so, think, like all good it, art. Yes, exactly. So the gameplay involves a first person walking simulator. It has elements of mystery. There's slight puzzle solving. There's lots of reading. If you are a reader. You are in for a treat if you like reading mm-hmm. diaries, notes, and I really like that day turns into night. Yes. Did you like that? I love that. Mechanically, I found it a little bit, uh, my big frustration with this game is how hard it is to navigate. Um, again, I think that actually contributes to what it has to say. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think it is probably the right artistic choice. I think it I think it helps support the central thesis. Um, but... So I did like that it turned into night. I do wish that I could have seen a little bit easier. And that's something uh, I was, on some Let's Plays I was watching of this where they recommend that you turn up your brightness as much as possible. I didn't find that it affected it that much. I assumed that it really? was something odd with the programming that at least on the Switch. So I'll say, I'll bet, I, I wonder if this, uh, how this plays in HDR, right? Like I know it's on the Xbox. Xbox has an auto HDR uh, thing. So I wonder if I played this on Xbox, would it be easier to see? Um, but that said, uh, I found that changing the brightness just changed how gray the parts I couldn't see were. Like it made the parts that I couldn't see just grayer as opposed to pitch black. That's a good point. Yeah, I struggled. I struggled with the <laughs> the darkness element a lot. Yeah. But you do have a handy dandy flashlight. Thank goodness. <laughs> I would not have made it through this game without the flashlight. But any listeners who live in New Mexico, you may be happy to know that this game takes place approximately 250 miles northwest of Albuquerque. Mm-hmm. And the suicide, the perfect heaven mass suicide, occurred in 1993. Yep. I was four years old. Yeah, yeah. That, those early 90s were rough for cults. Yeah, this was, <laughs> this was right in the pocket for uh, cult, cult city there in the U.S., <laughs> Are you ready to dive in? You ready to go to the ranch, Chris? I sure am. 
Okay. You, you're, you open with driving in the desert and you hear a woman's voice and it's the narrator. She says, I met Anne first waiting for the bus. I asked her what she was selling and she laughed and said nothing, nothing at all, that what she had to offer was free for anyone who wanted it bad enough. I asked her what, she had, what had helped her. She just said, James. And then the scene fades and you are in front of a fence. You're in front of the compound. So you then get to inspect the trunk of your car to get some wire cutters so you can cut the fence because the gate will not open. Oh, indeed. So what did you think about this intro? Were, did it spook you a little bit? Um, yeah, a little bit. It, like, it, it's very evocative. You're, you're instantly alone. Um, I can see a scenario, again, like different ways, different little pitfalls that could have happened. Like, what if the opening of this was you on a bus? And I think that would, strangely enough, change the tone of it pretty significantly. So I'm happy that it's the narrator traveling uh, solo in a car to this place. Like, you're isolated from the get-go. Mm -hmm. uh, and that ends up having a lot of resonance later on in the story. So I'm trying to remember the first time I played this. I was thinking, okay, am, am I a detective? I was wondering, am, yeah. am I a detective? Am I going to explore... Like, uh, am I going to help people? Am I going to try to bring people out of this cult? Mm -hmm. Who did you think you were? I I was really wondering this myself. Um, yeah, I, I like you, I assumed that I was some kind of um, either uh, some manner of law enforcement coming in to investigate what had happened. Uh, as it turns out, this is actually, well, I, I, I guess we can give spoilers. If somebody's listening to this, they're going to be spoiled on it eventually. <laughs> But, um, you know, it, I, uh, it turns out that it's a bit further in the future than I thought it was from the events that uh, the, the 1993 uh, mm -hmm. suicide. So I thought, yeah, that, that it was uh, some manner of law enforcement coming to investigate it uh, after it had happened. Like, I, I, mm -hmm. I assumed that what, what was going to happen had already happened, but I thought maybe they were investigating it later. Or even maybe a historian, you know, visiting to uh, kind of get an understanding of what had happened there. I love the historian one. That's really good. I, I'm, you know, I think it's it's probably just my bias as a historian. <laughs> <laughs> so you take the fence cutter, uh, wire cutters, excuse me, and you cut open the fence. Okay, first of all, um, that would be very ominous to me that I can't even open the gate. But yes. okay, I'm also not that brave to go explore a compound by myself. Same. Okay, but we will understand why this person is alone. Mm -hmm. So the first building you enter is the community hall. It's extremely dark inside. So you can inspect pictures after you turn on the generator. You have to find a generator key yes. outside. It hums, it comes to life. You can use light switches. And so then you can start inspecting pictures of Father James. And I think I read somewhere that his likeness, a redheaded man, middle-aged man, is based off the creator's likeness, the creator That's of this game. Cute. That, that is a cute directorial choice. <laughs> I could be wrong, but I, I think so because he I was limited. True. He was limited on resources, right? Of course. So you can also find pictures of Bible verses. And 
Were you a little disturbed by some of the Bible verses in the bathrooms? Did you read those? Good Lord, yes. Yeah, the, <laughs> the one, um, especially, I think it's the one in the women's room is, uh, and I, I see, you know, uh, I see you have here in the notes verses from Leviticus. I, I think it's it's one of those like real rough, uh, you know, like your your like your body is evil, like your body is unclean kind of uh, Old Testament verses. Yeah. Yeah, it was talking about um, how long in between a woman's menstrual cycle you can exactly. sleep, you can lie with her. Yeah, um, and dark stuff. I'm not going to pretend to be a Bible scholar, but Leviticus tends, it's more of like the rules, right? Mm -hmm. It's from the Old yeah. Testament. Yeah, very Old Testament rules that uh, like it sets up a lot of the dietary restrictions. It sets up a lot of behavioral restrictions, that sort of thing. Um, that, uh, like have been modified in interesting ways by different, uh, like religious groups over time, uh, to what extent various groups adhere to those Levitical restrictions is, is an interesting subject. Uh, but it, it looks like the perfect heaven cult here was pretty into Leviticus. Yes. And I noticed Father James cherry picks which Bible verses he <laughs> wants to follow, but we'll get into that. Not a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. So you can read the bulletin board and learn about members of the flock. They're introducing themselves. I, I love little touches like that. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Leonard. Hi, I'm Viola. This is and, so sweet and sad. Like the, this, this bulletin board really, I think, sets a, it's another good bit of tone setting as far as kind of getting an idea of who these people are and getting just this little window into what makes them tick. It reminds me of elementary school. You remember those bulletin yeah, boards in elementary much. school? Yes. Yep. And so I love this element. You can find a tape deck, okay? And a cult member shares a story. It ends up being the narrator, the same voice we heard at the beginning of the game. Mm -hmm. And everything goes black and white. And the light focuses on the tape deck. They're very short. They're about a minute, two minutes long of recordings. But in this particular one, the narrator shares times of loneliness after graduating from college. She... Mm -hmm was a communications major. She wasn't sure what she wanted to do. I believe she and her boyfriend had broken up. Right. And this quote stuck out with me. We were all broken in some way, I think, some more than others. And I believe mm -hmm. she's talking about the members of the cult. Yeah. It's appropriate that you find this so close to that bulletin board where, where you're kind of getting introduced to everybody. And, oh, you know, yeah. she, she immediately references the us, the collective of the cult. Great observation, Chris. That's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I, I love these tape decks, too. I I think uh, audio logs are unfairly maligned in games, um, and I think they can do a lot of good heavy narrative lifting. And I think this game makes the most of them, A, by just having a single voice. So uh, it, it's reliably getting access to the same person, except I want to say in one case, we get one from James, I think. We, we get... I think we get one audio log that's from somebody else, but most of the time they're they're by this single narrator. Keeps the resources down, keeps you focused on her story. You know, there's I think these are a really good example of audio logs in the medium. So now I'm going to get a little philosophical. Yeah. Did someone leave these? Are they actually even there? Or is that supposed to represent the narrator pausing and reflecting? Yeah, I don't think they're there. I hadn't thought about that until you just said it, but now that I think about it, it's uh, everything in this uh, space is set up so deliberately, and the idea of there being all of these tape decks sitting around is is absurd and artificial. 
which like it may it would make sense in a less in a game with less kind of uh, like verisimilitude. But in this case, it just wouldn't make any sense for these tape decks to be everywhere. And with what we find out at the end of the game, it makes a lot of sense that the narrator is kind of pausing and reflecting on this. We're just experiencing it through the artificiality of an on-screen tape deck. Yes, and law enforcement would have scooped these up right yes, away exactly. and came across these tape decks. If you think about it, the sheer amount of evidence just sitting around this compound that wasn't scooped up really is kind of a scathing indictment of whoever investigated it. <laughs> That's a great point. Like, maybe you need some training. We're going to yeah. put you back in Investigation 101. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave the bloody shovel on the ground. And I, yeah. oh, oh gosh, <laughs> I love, love, love the implicit storytelling. You, yep. if you want to experience the, just the absolute greatness of this game, you have to read everything. It tells you so much more. So when you go into the kitchen of the community hall, you can read about how a cult member named Leonard takes more than his fair share of food. Mm -hmm. And he could face consequences in the cleansing room. Reading that alone was very ominous. I don't think I'd eat ever again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You, you don't you don't want to see a proper noun cleansing room. You know, you, you don't want to see that in a note. No, oh, especially when we get to the cleansing room. Mm -hmm. So after you activate the generator for the community hall and you explore, you can then grab the gate key and the farm shed key. So this is really important in the farm shed. You head to the farm shed and you find a jacket and flashlight batteries. You're definitely going to want the flashlight. And so there's also another tape deck. And this one talks about the narrator's experience meeting Father James. James criticizes mainstream religions. And there are multiple notes throughout the compound where he vilifies different denominations of Christianity. He calls mm -hmm. Catholics idol worshipers. Yep. I don't remember what he said about maybe like Baptist or... One of them he described as perverts or something. Like, I, I can't remember. I think it remember. was Catholics. I think... It, wa it wasn't... It, it specifically wasn't Catholics because okay. I remember that that um, the Catholics were idolaters. You know, actually, now that you mention it, I think he did say idolaters and perverts. I, I think you're right. I think that was... Uh, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think there were at least four different denominations that he vilified for different reasons. Maybe Catholic stuck out to me because I was raised Catholic. <laughs> Same, yeah. I probably paid a little more attention to that, yeah. What's he saying about us? <laughs> yeah. So then you head to the trailer park, and this is where all the cult members lived. So you can easily miss this item, Chris. And I didn't. I actually found this. But yeah, yeah, go on, go on. You, I, you I... want to... You want to tell us what it is? Yes, it is a it is a pregnancy test uh, found in an outhouse, a positive pregnancy test. The positive's a big deal. <laughs> yes, it is. So, oh, we're going to get more into that pregnancy test. And you get an achievement if you find it. Oh, cool. Yes, yes. So what's interesting about the trailer park is some trailers cannot be opened because the doors are rusted shut, rusted shut. And that irritated me because I'm nosy. I want to peek around mm -hmm. everybody's living quarters. I want to learn more about them. Yeah. So then you can go to Andrew's trailer. Just keep poking around. You'll eventually be able to open someone's trailer. You can open Andrew's trailer and you see Viola's note and you learn about her interest in Andrew. And I was like, ooh, things are about to get spicy soap opera. <laughs> <laughs> right here. And we also learn that she has two children, Lucas and Juliet. Okay. This is something I have a big issue with. Mm -hmm. I don't care what adults, consenting adults choose to do, but I hate that children were dragged into this. Right. Exactly. 
Yeah, and and do we know whether Lucas and Juliet were on site here at the compound or if they were her children who she left when she came here? They are on the compound. Um, okay, I didn't catch that. When you go to Viola's trailer, it'll actually say Viola, uh, Sister Viola with Lucas and Juliet or something. You're right. I remember that sign. I didn't make the yeah. I, I didn't uh, make the connection there. Yep, I remember that sign now. Oh, that, that's doubly sad. It's a lot to take in, and we yeah. learn. You learn um, reading notes later on that Viola is recently divorced. She's in her mid thirties. I think mm -hmm. Lucas is nine. Juliet's eleven. They're young kids. Yeah, when I found out that she was divorced and she had the kids, I, I automatically jumped to the kids are with her um, her ex-husband. Uh, but that turned I, out to be untrue. I, I wish, wish they, they were. <laughs> with her ex-husband, yeah. yes. So then you go um, to explore Andrew's trailer a little bit more, and there's a ta another tape deck. And you learn about the routine of the cult and how everyone's roles worked. People cook, people clean, um, people build things. They're a big community. And this narrator's quote stuck out to me. I would have done anything for father, as in reference to Father James. He saved me. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then we go to Viola's trailer, and you can read about her message to Lillian. Lillian is beginning to show doubts in the flock. And we can also listen to a tape that further explains the narrator's happiness with being Father James, quote-unquote, chosen. Yeah. So Viola, I want, I realized I put she, but we wanted to make this clear with Lillian or Viola. Viola okay. believes she is pregnant, but she is unsure who the father is. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That's an interesting detail. I, I just, I assumed that the father was uh, Father James for reasons that we find out later. Um, but... Uh, yeah, that, that's interesting. I guess there was more romance going on at this uh, this compound. Well, reading Viola's um, note to Andrew about, hey, um, after my kids are done eating or they're in their trailer, we should meet. Yes. Ever else. So I was wondering, okay, is it Andrew's? Is it Father James? Right. Uh, I don't know. Is it Leonard's? <laughs> Whatever <laughs> yeah. guy. So the next up is the school. So you can imagine that the teachings are not focused so much on geometry and literature as they are on the Bible, but specifically Father James' twisted views of the Bible. The Book of Serial, I think, is his uh, his own uh, like contribution to the Bible, so to speak. Yeah, and it, I think in the Book of Revelation it says, do not add to the Bible <laughs> or something, do not take away from the Bible. Did you read the different children's notes and homework assignments? Yeah, I loved these. Um, like, I, I think I think we get three or four of them. Um, Seventy-five percent of them are all except for one are pretty uh, talking about the various things that the kids like about Father James. They they talk about like him making jokes and uh, that that makes them like him. And uh, Juliet, uh, one of the children, talks about how she admires Jesus. And she has a, a little note from the teacher on her assignment that says, like, we need to talk about this, uh, which, again, I think is kind of a, a, a grim vision of things to come and a, another sad indictment of what is rotten at the core of this cult. 
Yes. What I mean, wouldn't the whole point of this religious cult, a Christian-based religious cult, be mm-hmm. to admire Jesus? So that just lets you know about the narcissist in charge over here. Yeah, it's not really about the uh, the faith or the ideas. It's about propping up this uh, this very sad, desperate man. Yes. And so there's another tape deck and another generator. You can activate the generator, which you will want to do if you want to see. <laughs> and the narrator talks about helping Viola in the schoolhouse. And she brings up the woman we heard about at the beginning, Anne. Anne's kind of like the mother of the flock. But Viola was the most devoted member. I would say, I would say, uh, this is not a quote from the game, but it came to my mind, uh, fire and brimstone type teachings. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot lot of that kind of stuff here. Yeah, no uh, turn the other cheek kind of teachings. (laughs) No, which I I think is kind of interesting. Like that, the interplay between those tends to be important for um, like like the appeal of, Mm -hmm. uh, broadly speaking, a religious group, but Mm -hmm. specifically Christianity. You know, the the interplay of those is important in that, like the, the, the divine mercy and so forth is a key part, I think, of what draws people to it from outside and it if if there's a minor flaw in the writing here i think it's that uh we don't spend enough time seeing that side of uh father james or the cult like we we kind of hear about it in the narration that people were attracted to this place and it filled a hole for them but we never hear much about the specifics of what was taught that made it appealing to them like, we just hear yeah. the fire and brimstone part, which doesn't seem like it would attract people. That's a great point. We we see a little bit of Father James' views later on, but yeah. there's nothing warm and cuddly, which makes me think. No. Oh, that's a, so what was he, God, what was he running on then? Just Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know there, there are some folks who just kind of crave order. And so mm-hmm. there there is kind of a sense of order to it. Although even that we don't really see a lot of in the, Father James is a little wishy-washy. Uh, mm-hmm. He kind of flies by the seat of his pants as far as what... Um, we we see the cult transform through these notes in the time that... In such a short period of time that you can't even really see it that the order appealed to them. Like the, the mm-hmm. structure and everything. There, we do see a little bit of the structure insofar as there was like, these are your roles. Which, of course, is appealing to folks who are searching for meaning. But um, yeah, I, I think it is a minor flaw of the writing that we don't get a little bit more of what's appealing about it. Like we hear Father James made jokes kind of from the kids. Like that's that's not something that would attract somebody to a cult. Like we the things that we find out about him that are positive traits are not positive enough to make people join a, a death cult. That's a great point. Um, I don't... There are some trailers, again, that you can't access and you don't yeah. really learn about all the characters. I think there were some married couples, but the ones, the, the people we learned the most about seemed like they were single. Yep. So, like you were saying, the draw of order, I'm wondering if it's like, uh, I, I just want to escape. I just need an escape and mm-hmm. some stability. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's hard for me to to criticize this too much because I don't really want the game to be any longer, and I think what's there is so substantial. But it is interesting that the writing gets much more into the psychology of the characters and mm-hmm. their flaws uh, and why they needed something to fill the hole without really getting into what the specific appeal of Perfect Heaven was. 
beyond just kind of the personal charisma of Father James. Well, I guess our homework assignment is let's join a cult and find out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's find out. Let's what, let's see what makes this tick and hope we get out the other side. <laughs> so you need to read the calendar and you're going to learn the code needed to open the gate to the rectory. So that is something about this game with reading. I do want to point out, in addition to learning a lot of interesting facts and getting a lot of substance about the game, you do need codes to open some sections and you have to pay attention to what some notes say because the code you need on the calendar, I think it's the day that Father James had his revelation or something. Exactly. Yeah, June 3rd, I want to say. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. So you need that to open the gate to the rectory. And this is another, a rectory was another word where I'm like, okay, I've heard that my whole life. Right, exactly. We have but rectories. I looked, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's the place where the religious clergy live, mm -hmm. correct? Okay. Yeah, I thought this was very odd that this was here. Like, I really specifically think of rectories as, um, uh, like, like, uh, Catholic and, um, uh, like Anglican, uh, Episcopal, mm -hmm. I guess you'd say in the U S um, you know, like it, it tends to be for, for certain religious groups. It doesn't, I correct me if I'm wrong, if you know this, I, I don't tend to think of too many Protestant groups having rectories because, uh, mm -hmm. the clergy tends to be just drawn from the community. As mm -hmm. opposed to being kind of like set aside as as they are, um, you know, in Catholicism. And and I so I thought that it was kind of funny that, that we had a rectory here. I just don't tend to think of cults hmm. having rectories. <laughs> I know, that's a good point. So my hometown's church, there was the there was a church and there was this hall next to it where mm -hmm. you could have Sunday school and you could yep. actually book it to have events. And then next to the church was the house, what we call the priest house. Yeah. I don't remember we called it the rectory. That that would be a rectory though. Maybe maybe it was just like a nomenclature kind of thing. Like yeah. that that traditionally would be referred to as uh, as a rectory. I'm thinking too much into this. But but that's a good <laughs> point. But okay, now that you you're making me think again, Chris, have mm. we noticed all the poor flock members live in these teeny tiny trailers and do we see what James lives in? A nice two-story house. Yeah, yeah, this is this is kind of an interesting reversal as well from, um, you know, other more institutional religious communities where broadly speaking, the clergy, I mean, outside of situations where things have gone, things have gone wrong and clergy have amassed uh, fortunes they shouldn't have, which of course <laughs> does happen. But, um, you know, like the traditional thing is supposed to be that uh, clergy, broadly speaking, in, in a host of religious uh, traditions, uh, don't don't live in much fancier digs than than the people uh and generally even where they do live in fancier digs than the average person it is a it's a communal living space mm -hmm. so you know it's it's a group of people sharing one slightly fancier place whereas this that dynamic is reversed as you said the people get the flock get these kind of dumpy extremely tiny trailers like can you imagine viola and her two children in that tiny trailer i was uh that's it's just so small and then, yeah, he, Father James has, yeah, multi-story house all to himself. And they have to walk to the outhouse to use the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah, you don't you don't get a lot of uh, 1990s outhouses. Mm -hmm. Rough. Mm -mm. If they're roughing. Yeah, they're roughing it. That's <laughs> You know, while we're here, I did just uh, briefly want to draw attention to um, this little puzzle with getting the code. I really like this. Uh, this was one of my favorite little moments in the game um, because I, I love... Uh, like classic 90s survival horror. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And this is straight out of a 1990s survival horror, like needing to examine documents to get a code, then to fill it in somewhere in the environment to progress is just like classic Silent Hill, Resident Evil, that sort of thing. Oh, yes. I, I think if you're a fan of those games, you'll probably enjoy this. Exactly. There, there's a surprising amount of connective tissue here. And like a lot of the time, walking simulators don't quite uh, strike my fancy because they aren't as mechanics forward. And I tend to be kind of a mechanics over story guy. But this had such a nice balance of the two due to those little puzzles. I'm, I'm glad it wasn't too bad of an experience for you. I didn't know you didn't like walking simulators. <laughs> I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that I don't like them. You know, they're, they're not my they're not my preferred genre, uh, but in much the same way that like 3D action isn't my preferred genre, but I still play it sometimes. You know, you got to oh, have yeah. a diet, oh, diet of all different genres. Diet of, I like that, a balanced diet. <laughs> yes. So then when you go to the rectory, you do find a VHS, VHS tape, which... Um, if you're not familiar with those, that's what we had before DVDs and streaming. Um. <laughs> it was a dark age. <laughs> you had to rewind them. Yes, and uh, if they could get messed up in your VCR, which was the, the machine that played them. I Gosh, I messed up some VHS tapes. We've all had a VCR that ate a tape, you know? God. So then Terrible you also... <laughs> it was. <laughs> then you find a note from Father James about how he is a prophet whose quote-unquote teachings are directly from the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Okay, very inflated sense of self. Yeah. Uh, you also find a diary, I believe it's, I don't know if it's Viola or Anne, um, about how James seems to be entertaining people of the flock. Um, mm -hmm. And by that I mean he is having sex with members of the flock. Yeah, yeah, th this is the turn. It's It's the turn that virtually every cult leader makes at some point. Yes, and the room where you find a lot of these things, it's, uh, um, I, I, it's not something you'd think a religious person would have. <laughs> no, this is so, like, creepy and sad. It's just, yeah, the, this very kind of, uh, he's got, like, a camcorder set up next to his bed. It's very gross. There are red lights on. Yes, exactly. And I don't know if he was filming the axe while, with a red light, or if it's just supposed to symbolize red alert, red alert. That's a good question. Attention. Yeah, I assume that it was the lighting of the room, uh, just because I think it contributes to that kind of like uh, debaucherous tone. Uh, and you know, it occurs to me to, to walk back for just a moment. You know, l lest I lest I be uh, kind of kink shaming here on a podcast or anything. Like if people want to videotape what they're doing. You know, like by all means, you know, but um, it's the coercive nature of this. It's There's the, a power uh, dynamic. It's the power dynamic yes. that makes this so unpleasant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, it's again, I don't I don't like like Chris said, you do whatever you like as a <laughs> right, consenting right. adult, but he's manipulating these people. And especially as you read these notes and he's saying he's the prophet. So, of course, that's going to make people feel special. Oh, I'm his chosen. Exactly. Like Viola, Viola said, I'm his chosen or Lillian said. There's another tape in the bedroom, and we hear Father James. He's giving a sermon on people's roles and justifying his sleeping with the women of the flock, even the married ones. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, I think, uh, yeah, you, there, there's another note, I think, about this, about how, um, like, it's, it's, it's uh, normally, it, any, any other time, the marriage bond would be more important, but because he's so important, it's even more valuable than the marriage bond. Just very, yes. very coercive, creepy stuff. 
Yeah, I think he says how women are supposed to provide relief, or I don't know. It's yep. it's it, you kind of want to throw up a little bit while you're listening to this. You sure do. <laughs> really yeah. So, so that's very much a reflection, um, an inspiration from Jim Jones because mm-hmm. um, when I was watching that documentary about Jonestown, he would say things like that, and I think he even slept with men. Oh, okay. So I'm wondering if Father James slept with men as well. Yeah, we don't really, we don't really get an inkling of that. We do see, um, we do see a very unpleasant uh, bit right towards the end where um, he's speculating about like the the appropriate age that he can start sleeping with people. Um, and he's, you can see him starting to modify his thinking on that and speculating about whether he can go younger than he had been, oh. which is a, a dark little moment. Um, so, yeah, there, there, there's definitely some flexibility in uh, who Father James is targeting with his affections. And whether, whether that extends like gender wise or just age wise, it's hard to say. And I was about to say, I guess the silver lining to this is that he's not going after the children, but I forgot about that part. Yeah, well, you know, there's no sign uh, that that happened before the mass suicide event. So, you know, it's just uh, maybe that would have been the direction that it was headed in. Again, it's killing me that the detectives do not pick up these VHS tapes and these notes, but I digress. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much information. Yeah. So you can also read a diary with a note to Viola about there's a deceiver in the group. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And Father James is beseeching her to seduce the men, namely Andrew, Leonard, and Peyton, to find out who is a traitor. My so... money's on Leonard, that food-stealing jerk. <laughs> no, I just, I just. I like that. I like that. If he can <laughs> steal food, he's gonna he's gonna steal the flock away yeah. from Father James. <laughs> so I believe that's why earlier we found that note with Viola kind of talking to Andrew that way. Mm-hmm. Hey, my kids are gonna be in bed or doing whatever. If you want right. to come hang out. Oh yeah, I thought that was sincere, but now that you mention it, when you when you piece together the details, that's probably part of this plot. You're right. Hmm. Sneaky, sneaky. So now we head back to the trailer park and we enter Leonard's trailer. Navigating this in the dark with a flashlight is a little trying. The trailer park can be it, it can be a little annoying. It can be a little time consuming. Mm-hmm. Then you find some bolt cutters and you use them to enter Peyton's trailer. And you find what Chris mentioned earlier, a bloody shovel. Why is this still here? I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Leonard's trailer has a tape deck with a message about erratic behavior and messages from Father James, which we alluded to. He seems to keep changing the Mm -hmm. goalposts with what he expects from his followers. There are changed rules and views. Innocent things are now mortal sins. And he seems to be afraid and the note talks about who the possible traitor is. I don't think they explicitly say it. I think he's just talking to um, Andrew about, let's meet, I know it's him. Let's meet at his yeah. trailer. Yeah, he's definitely growing more paranoid as he becomes more uh, selfish and, and power hungry. Yeah, he. I think he's like, oh, they're on to me. Right. So then we head off to Peyton's trailer and we find extensive notes on all the members. So this kind of gives it away. The notes in Peyton's trailer that... You can tell Peyton's head is screwed on a little bit tighter than the mm-hmm. other folks. Um, I'm trying to remember who is what. Uh, there's someone in the group who's a former police officer, I believe, or military member. Yeah, I don't think that's Peyton. I think it's Henry. Uh, but yeah. 
Just it was him. one of the ones who I don't think had had too big of a role in the story. Uh, I do yeah. remember catching that. Yeah, he was he was like a former Marine or something like that. Yeah, and someone I might be Leonard is a former drug addict. Yep. And yeah, there, there's too many. Um, there's there's kind of too many names in this. I feel like to keep really close track of. Like I I kind of honed in on maybe two or three of the uh, like Lillian, James, and Peyton were kind of the the people who I I remembered best. Yeah, and since you can explore only a few trailers, those are the people you tend to focus on. Right. So then you have to head to the Big Tree Fire Pit because we learn that there's a key for Lillian's, tra uh, Lillian's trailer buried there. And this is another little fun achievement. Did you do mm -hmm. this one? No. So I, funny enough, anything with achievements doesn't work on Switch. Like the Switch doesn't have an achievement system. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, individual games sometimes have internal achievements, so maybe, maybe this does have that, I couldn't say, but, uh, no, I did not get the achievement here, but what, what is that achievement, Celeste? It's actually really, it's cute, considering yeah. the tone of the game. There are some baseball diamonds, and if you run the bases, you get an achievement. Adorable. <laughs> Isn't that fun? Well, I guess. No story is too dark for a little baseball gag, oh, no. you know? It's America's pastime. Yeah. <laughs> So the key for Lillian's trailer is buried under a rock dirt pile at the base of the big tree. And you have to use the bloody shovel to unearth it, which mm -hmm. felt a little morbid to me, but yeah, okay. And we're going back to the trailer park. I feel like that's a theme. I kind of like that you have to use the shovel with the blood on it. I think it, I think it dovetails really nicely with Lillian's uh, sense of guilt about this. Oh. That the tool that she uses to learn more about this uh, has the blood of, of a person who she feels responsible for the death of on it. Chris, that's genius. <laughs> this game is so tightly plotted. That is so it's, cool. Yeah, I, I was really impressed with this. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and, and so speaking of Lillian, now that we have the key, we can mm -hmm. go into her trailer. So there's another tape deck, and there's a key to the cleansing room, which we mentioned mm -hmm. earlier. There's also a diary about how Father James' teachings change. Other, she's noticing it as well. So apparently they change based on what is convenient for him. Yeah. And there's another, the tape is about Peyton's role in investigating Father James. So I believe he's with the FBI. That's how I recall this, yeah. And, and this again made me think of um, like, like the Waco incident. Like he's corresponding with the FBI on this. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, you're you're a little bit afraid that maybe there's going to be some kind of unfortunate confrontation. Yes. So Peyton wants to help the narrator leave the cult. And that's where you find this pamphlet about how to tell you for an occult. And it's extremely detailed. It's about mm -hmm. three, four pages long. I want to know if um, if uh, Nathan uh, so-and-so, I can't remember his last name, the creator of this. Uh, I, I, I want to know if he pulled this from a real world pamphlet. This is just so well-written in that informative style? That's a good question. Yeah, maybe just inspired by, but I thought this was another tight bit of writing. Very it's different very... than the, the diary entries, but also very well written. Yes. Then you'll also find a note from Father James warning Lillian not to read secular books that could lead her astray. And uh, he kind of hints that there could be severe consequences if she continues doing that. Classic cult stuff, yeah. Only listen to me, don't listen to what anybody else has to say. So this makes me wonder some things um, about the next part regarding Lillian. Mm -hmm. 
So then you head to the cleansing area. And by the way, sometimes the stretches can be a little long, especially the darker it gets because you might get lost. So I did often. Yeah. <laughs> you're not just transported to the next building. You have to walk there. It's an interesting choice that you your character doesn't appear on the mini map. Uh, you can pull up a map uh, to see the, the, the compound, but you don't have a little icon on the map to show where you are. Oh, yeah, and you also have a note about the in-game map right here. <laughs> yeah, th this threw me off. Uh, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll get around to that in just a moment. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I'll, I'll address that then because this uh, this is the one part that I needed to use a guide for. That is a good point. And um, we also never see what the narrator looks like, by the way. No, no that's true. Mm -hmm. No mirrors. And it's not like the What Remains of Edith Finch, where you can actually look down and, and see Edith's feet and arms. Right. Yeah. Isn't that always an interest? I, you know, I don't want to take us off on a tangent. You know, this is uh, but I, I always think it's interesting the choice that a um, a developer makes between having in a first person game your your character avatar have arms and legs versus not. Uh, and then that varies pretty radically from one game to the next. I think the first time I encountered that was Halo. I think Halo was the first first-person game that I played where you could look down and see your character's legs. But not every oh. game has that. It, it really it varies quite a bit. I don't know which way I prefer. I'm wondering if that was a decision by Nate due to the fact that he was a one-man show for this, and it would have been... Yeah, it was a smart call not to have it because it doesn't <laughs> end up affecting anything, and, you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure if you could cut some corners doing this uh, one person, you would. Absolutely. So the cleansing room is very gruesome from the get-go. You walk up to it, it kind of looks like a giant red barn, mm -hmm. and you, you hear and see some little flies, gnats buzzing around, and there's blood spilling from the front of the door. So, um, excuse my language, but this is when I thought shit's about to get real. <laughs> yeah, I thought we were going to find a bunch of bodies in here. I thought this is where the suicide took place. Yes, yes. So you walk in, and that's when music kicks. It's been silent. Music mm -hmm. starts again. It's very dark, synthy music. And you walk in, and there's an axe on the floor in front of an altar. Okay, so this, this part, uh, if you are... If you've been listening this far, I'm assuming you played the game because we've just spoiled a heck of a lot for you. <laughs> but this was this is definitely the most disturbing and most uncomfortable. I mean, James' little sex room was very uncomfortable, but this one is disgusting. Absolutely. Yeah, disgusting. this is very dark. Like, I mean, this is obviously a place where a lot of harm has occurred. Yes. So when you heard the term cleansing room, what did you think? Um, I, I assumed it was, uh, just again, you know, the, the kind of history background, but I tend to think of like self-flagellation and so forth from the middle ages like that, mm -hmm. um, you know, expiating, uh, expiating moral sins through harming the body. Um, and so I, I, I assumed it was some, I guess in the end, funny enough, I, I guess I assumed it was what it turned out to be, that it was a, uh, that it was a place for people to be kind of voluntarily tortured, uh, for the purpose of uh, cleansing their soul, so to speak. Yes. Um, I guess if you want to look at it more optimistically, you could think, oh, is it a place where they baptize people as well? Yeah. If I hadn't already found the blood outside the door <laughs> and, like, and seen on the map that I was, this is one of the perils of getting lost, is I had already been to the outside of the cleansing room by the time that I read about it. 
Mm-hmm. And so I, it, yeah, you're right. It, that that colored my impression of it. If I had just read about the cleansing room first, maybe I would have uh, thought, oh, this could be a, a positive, like a, you know, yeah, like a baptismal space. Yes, and because of that note that you see so early on about Leonard stealing food and he might have to go to the cleansing room to face consequences, that, oh, it's ominous all around. Yep. And so there is um, a very disturbing note where you can read about the punishments for certain sins. Like, for example, if you um, steal, I think they cut off your finger. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If this one's really gruesome, but... uh, they say uh, there are certain, I don't know if it's murder, rape, and something else, they will cut off the offending appendage. Right. Um, which, you know, maybe in some cases I'd be okay with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, ho- hopefully it didn't come up here, um, I-, I guess, except for obviously all of the, the coercive stuff that Father James is doing. But clearly he is not subject to these same rules. Exactly. Yeah. And... It seems very rooted in the Old Testament laws, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the, 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 old, the old ways, yeah. This, okay, what I found absolutely disturbing is you find another tape deck about the cleansing room where I, I think it was weekly, they'd have to declare their sins to the flock, like a public <clears throat> sacrament of reconciliation. That's what came to my mind because... Uh, when I would go to confession, it was just a priest. It wasn't the whole congregation, right? This this is actually how um, how reconciliation was originally done in the Catholic tradition. Uh, really? In, in the, yeah, in the early centuries, actually, as as late as when Christianity reached Ireland, because if memory serves, it was still being done there into like, I want to say maybe, shucks, I, I don't remember when Christianity reached Ireland, but it must have been sometime in like, the late Roman era, I want to say. So even as even as late as maybe, let's say, like the 500s AD, mm-hmm. this is how confession was done in, in the Catholic tradition, was that there would be a period... Actually, funny enough, I think we still have that portion of Mass, uh, but it's now like a communal... Um, it's, it's, gosh, for any Catholic listeners, it's the, uh, it's the portion of Mass where... Um, it's like the Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy bit. Mm-hmm. That... Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on this. Read about it, of course. I'm not. I'm no scholar, but I believe that was originally the period where members of the congregation would confess in public to the sins that they had committed, and then at some point it became like a communal asking for forgiveness. But yeah, this this tradition that they have here at um, at Perfect Heaven is a- actually uh, straight from early Catholicism. Wow. So it makes me wonder how honest are people. Oh, probably not very honest. I, I think uh, I think that's probably why they changed it, right? You know, that, that's probably why it became a private uh, practice. I'm, I'm not sure when that changed, but I think there was a sense that people were maybe not that honest when they were talking in front of all of their family and friends. I'm just picturing that you can make that a, an interesting comedy sketch where maybe one guy's having an affair with another woman and he's standing mm-hmm. right next to his wife and he's not going to say anything in front of the whole congregation. Yeah, it's ripe for comedy. I wish we had sitcoms from the uh, the 500s AD. You know, we probably could have gotten to see this. <laughs> Maybe like uh, the Canterbury Tales, right? Yes, there's probably <laughs> something in there for sure. <laughs> so the the tape deck, we hear the narrator's, narrator talk about this the, these public confessions, and she describes it as terrifying and wonderful to see. People would confess, and then they'd willingly accept their punishments. 
Yeah, I think terrifying and wonderful is kind of a good way to put this. Like it, it's both scary that that people would have given themselves over so strongly to something, but it's also there. There is something wonderful about the idea of somebody understanding that what they did was wrong and accepting the consequences for it. Like that, broadly speaking, isn't always how people behave, and usually it's not so heightened and, and horrifying as this. But, you know, generally the idea that somebody would say, this is my fault, I accept the consequences for it, is a wonderful thing in most contexts. Yeah, most people aren't so contrite. Ugh. No. Gosh. Yeah, so terrifying and wonderful is a nice, succinct way to put that, I think. I'm trying, now I'm thinking back to confession days <laughs> when I'd have to think of all the bad things I did. And, I, and like, did you, <laughs> I was reading it and I was trying to think, would I fall under any of these punishments? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'm a bad Catholic. I, I don't go to uh, to confession as much as I should. <laughs> I, I suspect I'm in line with most Catholics in that way. But, you know, that, that's my editorializing. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I did. I did think this was an interesting little bit here. A little bit of self-reflection, right? It is. So, okay. Then we go to the mines. Yes, there are mines here. Um, Are there mines in New Mexico? Oh, probably. Uh, there's mines all over the Southwest, if memory serves. I, I don't know what I don't know what they would have been mining for, but I, I mean, I guess it's kind of regionally. I'm I'm based in the East Coast, so I tend to think of like West Virginia and the Appalachians for mines. Like coal? Exactly, yeah, coal mining. Um, I'm not sure what they would have been mining for in New Mexico, but I, I know there's a whole um, like project to try to close those mines because they're like a danger to the people nearby. Oh, okay. Big federal, big federal project, if memory serves. I know that turquoise is a very valuable gemstone. Do you, do they mine for that? I have no idea. I've never thought of where turquoise came from. I just assumed it came from stores. I only know this because I follow some people on Instagram who, mm -hmm. um, they buy jewelry from a lot of Native American tribes and there oh. tends to be a lot of turquoise included Ooh. in this jewelry. So again, I don't know if there are any listeners who would like to help us. Um, I don't care if it's five years from now that you're listening to this and you want to <laughs> let us know, please. I need to know what people are mining for in New Mexico. Yeah, I'd be interested in knowing that too. Yeah. So then you have, there's a blockade, you break it with the ax and you go through different obstacles. Um, you eventually find a body. Um, it is indeed Peyton's body. And there's a note next to it then you notice did you notice all the weapons yeah the this way? is again it, it it starts getting more and more uh jonestown starts getting more waco uh this this sense that uh that overlap with militia groups you know you you have a lot of very heavy weaponry here uh like machine guns in in uh uh boxes i thought it was very cute that they're just a flat pixel like a, they're just they're a flat image uh, which I liked, like, you know, it, it took me back, you know, I played a lot of games in the 90s. So, you know, this is kind of what we got in 3D games of that era. And so I did think that it was kind of charming that the visual design of them is just a flat image of weapons in a chest. Yes. Well, okay, maybe they weren't actually mining. Maybe that was a front. Maybe that was strictly so they could use uh, the weapons and have target practice because you do see some of the sheets for target yes, practice. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you see a little shooting range down there. Yep. Which I guess would have muffled the sound of guns going off for anybody on the outside listening. If they would hear guns, they'd be like, oh, yeah, the, what's, what's going on? It's a terrible place. Uh, like, the, I mean, you know, having done some shooting in the past and everything, like, 
it's not a good idea to do that down there due to the like you want you want dirt uh you want dirt backstops and stuff like it if, if it's a mine with like rocks it's a good way to accidentally have some ricochets happening oh, but you know i guess <laughs> yeah this is not a safety first cult compound so uh it, it is a good question about whether um whether perfect heaven mined this or they just moved their stuff into a pre-existing mine space and I don't think that's clear. I, I don't think it's clear if it was a dis, disused mine that, that they stored their stuff in or if they mined it out. I start thinking of these things as we talk. Like, I, I didn't even think of some of these topics while I was writing these notes. See, this is- Isn't that the love. fun? Yeah, <laughs> that's the it. fun of it. Well, okay. So someone who's better with physics than I am, um, I hope that's you, Chris. <laughs> uh -oh. if, in addition to the ricochet, could you also cause a collapse? Oh, like probably not. I, I, maybe. I wouldn't think so. Um, just because, uh, uh, like, the nature of ballistics, I, I don't, I think you would need to have kind of, like, that's why TNT uh, kind of is what it is. Like, it's, it's hard to collapse uh, a space unless it's, um, uh, like, 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 already given to collapse. And if it was already given to collapse, all of your, your digging it out is probably going to be what causes the the cave-in. I, I don't think, broadly speaking, uh, like a bullet could cause a cave-in. I guess I, I guess I was wondering about, because they have these semi-automatic rifles. They have some exactly. very powerful weapons. And I don't remember if we found out, oh, I think it's Henry, right? Because he was in the military. Is that how Somebody's getting them. Yeah, somebody, I, I can't remember how they were getting them, but one of their members did have like a connection uh, it was probably Henry. I think you're right about that. I can't help but wonder what his connection was thinking. Why does Henry need all of these semi-automatic rifles? Yeah. yeah. What's Henry up to? I don't know. Some really uh, unscrupulous friends. And then, okay, I'm also wondering about, okay, how good are these people? I mean, they talk about how they're going to have trainings, mandatory trainings. Father mm -hmm. James is all about training everyone, including the, the children, which I don't want to picture a nine-year-old with a semi-automatic rifle. Right, exactly. I have just so many questions of, and not everybody who's part of the cult's going to be comfortable holding a gun. I mean, you just don't <laughs> give this kind of weapon to just any, oh God, I. I it's not a good setup. It's it's not a good setup they have going on down there. So there is many, no positive outcome. So many things could have gone wrong. I mean, yes. I, I remember like 10 or more years ago, I was like, oh, I want, I want to try uh, shooting something and I, I right. and I, it was like a small pistol. It might've even been a Magnum. I don't even remember. Yeah. I, I was so nervous and I was trying to shoot a target and the recoil enough made me never want to touch it again. Yeah. They're not easy. No, they're, they're, they're not easy. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not, you know, training is an important thing I think for these, uh, these folks, but, uh, it, it's very hard to imagine any of this going well. Uh, it, it I guess I guess the outcome that we get has a lower uh, mortality than might otherwise have happened with them stockpiling all of these weapons. I'm sorry to go off on that tangent. I just have so many questions about. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of logistical questions that this game poses that it does not answer. <laughs> That's okay. It's okay. Yeah. What is it? A uh, uh, suspension of disbelief. Yeah, willing suspension of disbelief. Yeah, pretty <laughs> pretty important for anything, but especially for this. So Father James claims that he's protecting the flock from the enemy, and he's probably in trouble with the law. Peyton's probably been writing, communicating with the FBI, with the United States government about what's going on. Exactly. 
And so like you alluded to with the bloody shovel and guilt, we hear another tape deck about it's by the body, Peyton's body, and it's about the narrator's guilt and Peyton's death. She wasn't involved in killing him, but she's worried because she talked with him that they became suspicious, the other members of the flock, mm-hmm. and they found out what he was doing. So the flock just covered up and said, oh, he uh, he left. Yeah. And nobody thought anything else of it. This is some very well-observed survivor's guilt. Like I like that. Um, I like that it indicates that that the narrator um, is aware that she didn't take an active role in his death, but but she has this sense of guilt for basically not having stopped it, for for not having done more, or or perhaps for having some kind of contributory role, as you said, to to people being suspicious, and uh, like from the outside looking in, it's very easy to say like, good heavens, like don't you can't blame yourself for the actions of this murderous cult. Uh, but also, it's very well observed. Like that—that that is what people feel. Yeah, it's it's very realistic. Yeah. So this part, the next part, is very challenging without a guide for me, at least. <laughs> Would <laughs> yep. you like to elaborate on this? Chris? Yeah. Um. This is this is what I needed a guide to figure out. Uh. You you find a note that indicates that uh there is a key in the southwest of the cornfields here at the compound. The cornfields are kind of broken up into four quadrants, uh, northwest, northeast, southwest, and southeast. Uh, and so A, I thought that it was going to be hard to find because you're searching. At this point, it's it's pretty much completely dark. Uh, and so you're searching through these rows of corn with uh, a thin flashlight beam anyway. Um, I will say just a minor technical quirk on the Switch version, probably on the other console versions is that aiming uh, to interact with items can uh, be a little finicky, a little precise. So um, it's probably easier with a mouse and keyboard, but but the point is that I was already aware that it was going to be hard to find whatever tiny patch of dirt existed in the middle of a cornfield uh, to find this key buried underneath it. However, I went up and down and up and down and up and down the Southwest Quadrant, uh, and finally I couldn't find anything, so I consulted a guide and it made me aware of the fact that the map in this game is not oriented how we traditionally orient maps in fiction, which is that north is up. We're kind of trained from the start that north is up. If you look at the map, north is left. So uh, I was looking around, well, I I don't have great spatial reasoning. One of the quadrants that was not northwest or whatever it is, uh, southwest, I guess, is the one that you're looking for. So I had to reorient myself. And then as soon as I realized which portion of the cornfield it actually was in, I did locate it. It actually was pretty clearly visually flagged once you're in the right quadrant. Oh, gosh. I didn't even think about the the orientation aspect. I felt so silly. I'd been looking at that map the whole game, looking at that little arrow pointing north and not internalizing it. No, don't feel bad. I I was just blown away by the darkness. So that was my problem. <laughs> it's so hard to see. Yeah. It's, it's basically like this little pile. Again, like where you find Lillian's key. It's a little dirt pile, but in the cornfield this time. But it, it that is my biggest frustration. That was probably my biggest frustration playing. Yeah, I if I want to be a little nitpicky, it's probably not an ideal. Uh, it's not a puzzle, right? Like it's just a, a search and find for um mm-hmm. you know which patch of dirt contains this because you already have the note telling you like the approximate location of it it it's a little busy work to to try to look around for this in the dark 
Um, I don't think it, I don't think it especially helps out the narrative or the gameplay or anything. So again, a minor critique. Yeah, were I to have one. Yes, my, mine too. Yeah. So this key leads you to the top floor of the rectory, which I don't believe we said, but the first time you visit the rectory, if you go upstairs, you cannot access the room. So this is the key that leads to that. You can finally watch the VHS tape in there. It is James' room, his bedroom. And when you watch the VHS tape, it's James rehearsing a speech. And you have to listen pretty carefully. He's and the other cult member. She's not on the camera. I guess she's in the background. She's his right. helper. And she helps remind him of what the code is. And you need that code to open up the safe next to his bedroom. Next to his bed, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Did you notice the illicit materials that Father James had? Yeah, <laughs> this was a bummer. This is um, th you know, this is a really weird, weird callback uh, for me. But it reminded me of, um, bear with me on this, but uh, obviously th this was not, not a religious leader, but a, a, uh, a religiously inclined leader. But of all people in American history, uh, Osama bin Laden. Um, obviously, you know, mastermind of the the Al Qaeda uh, September 11th attacks, and you know this kind of religious uh, zealot. Uh, when 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 his home was finally raided and and he was uh, killed killed by the the U.S. military, a huge amount of pornography was found um, on on his hard drives and so forth. And that's just that's kind of what this cast me back to. Just this idea of um, you know. Uh, this sense of religious zealotry and, and purity for everybody else, but it, it's almost a sense of projection by a person who can't fulfill their own um, their own ideology. Oh my gosh, thank you for that. I didn't realize they found that on his hard drive. Yeah, I don't remember why that detail stuck with me. It was just, it was a reminder that like, oh, here's some person who, you know, cast this image of like uh, religious purity and oh, nope, they're just like everybody else. Was he married? Uh, yeah, he was married to a few people. Okay. I oh, I wonder if they were Western films. You know what I'm saying? I, yeah, I couldn't say. I, I I couldn't say what what the uh, what the particular uh, what the particulars were of the, the cash that was found. But uh, yeah, it, it it just did remind me of that. That it was just kind of a, a a kind of a grim moral indictment of a person who wants to project a holier image than they can live up to. That's a great great point because <laughs> Father James. I, I don't know if he obviously he said like I it's good for me to sleep with whoever I want because I'm the prophet and don't you right. want the prophet to be pleased or whatever. Mm -hmm. Did he deter? No, well he wanted Viola to try to seduce some of the men. Yeah, like was was he was he trying to kind of uh, keep keep everybody to himself or was he encouraging relationships among his flock? I, I don't think that's in the text. I, I don't think it's clear. Like the only bit that we get is him trying to have Viola seduce people. Mm -hmm. So you could draw an inference from that, that romantic relationships were an assumed reality of the cult, because if they weren't, then that would have drawn attention to itself. Yeah, I I don't, I don't remember reading in the different notes. I mean, of course, his beliefs changed. They would fluctuate. Right depending on what he wanted, whatever benefited him. But I don't remember reading anything that explicitly said you couldn't date or married no. couples had to abstain. I don't even know if they pointed out what they were required to wear. 
No, I don't think I, I don't think it's ever uh, stipulated. Not in the text. I have so many questions, I guess, because I'm thinking with, with the materials you find that he has, I would assume the women in the cult could not dress that way. Yeah, I'm not sure like that. I guess that varies uh, from kind of cult to cult because I'm thinking of what's that one where they all had to wear the track suits, you know, like that's oh, one Heaven's, where uh, Heaven's Gate. Yeah, Heaven's Gate, you know, that that had kind of a uniform component. And then uh, but then like there are other cult groups where it seems like they don't particularly care what people dress like. Uh, like that's often a matter of, of power dynamics and coercion is enforcing mm -hmm. dress codes, mm -hmm. uh, be it in cults or elsewhere. And uh, yeah, that we, we don't really see that here. I used so I've read The Handmaid's Tale again. That's I know it's not a, a cult necessarily, and I've wa I watched the show. I, it was actually yeah. one of those that I had to stop watching because it made me mad. Like I'd be filled yes. with rage every time. I know. Yeah, I had to skip it. I figured I'd be too bummed out. Yeah. It's it's good. It's it's exactly. very good. But I'm thinking of how the wives wear green, the handmaids wear red. Mm -hmm. I think the husbands of the whatever they're called i mean it also depends on your status i think they wore suits so i was just thinking of that did they make them wear different clothing to represent different levels in the hierarchy is there a hierarchy i don't know yeah I'm hard thinking. to say yeah <laughs> it, that's for sagebrush too sagebrush too <laughs> <laughs> i would play it i would play it <clears throat> so you read his you can read father james diary and you definitely get the impression that he's very self-important he probably mm -hmm. suffers from illusions of grandeur and i can't help but wonder if he also has some kind of or had some kind of mental health issue perhaps yeah it's hard to say he, he's also he's got that classic kind of insecurity as well it's it's very um he's very blustery but also you get the impression that he he wouldn't have so so many fears if he didn't have uh some kind of insecurity I can't tell if he if he buys into his own hype. I guess the fact that there's a mass suicide at the end suggests that he did buy into his own hype. Uh, but it's it's a little hard to tell whether he believed it or not, isn't it? It is. Right. So next you grab the golden seal in the safe and you head to the chapel. Mm -hmm. And the note talks about a bunker of sorts that's within the chapel where there's yeah. food for a certain amount of time. There's a bed. There are resources. So I'd like to point out that um, if you played the game, you probably know this, but the chapel is the point of no return. So mm -hmm. if you're worried about achievements, get them before you go here. <laughs> this was um, very depressing to witness this is it, horrifying yeah this really i got i got goosebumps right now yeah um again because of the low poly resolution it it's not particularly graphic but mm -hmm. which i think i love because it leaves so much to your imagination which can actually exactly. be more terrifying yep but you go to the chapel and you hit the tape deck and the chapel is it's initially empty when you hit the tape deck all of a sudden you see these um black figures of the different members of the flock and there's their flames mm -hmm. so they committed mass suicide through group immolation or burning alive and you hear father james narrating he's trying to comfort the flock and tells them not to be afraid the doors are locked no one's getting out the narrator was part of a few people who handed out these cups of quaalude mixed in lemonade mm -hmm. um I, I don't know I, i'm not sure what the proper 
official term of a, a quaalude, of quaalude is. It's kind of, I don't know if it's a muscle relaxer or... Yeah, I always think of that as like a painkiller. I know it was like uh, popular as a recreational drug in the 1970s. But okay. uh, yeah, I, I I tend to think of it as like a like a painkiller, kind of like uh, like an opiate. I don't know if technically it's an opiate, but it's in that style, I, I guess. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I I I don't know if it's this one, but isn't that the one that some people put in drinks when they have ill intentions with women? I don't know. Like I I, I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure. Or is that roof roofie? Yes. Yeah. That that's like that. That's kind of the classic traditional thing there. Um, but yeah, I I, I, t I tend to think of quaaludes as like just a a very strong painkiller. Like it, I I think it preceded kind of like uh, like oxycontin and those various mm. uh, like the more modern things are those. But I think I think those kind of replaced quaaludes. Okay, so I guess James is nice in that he's not going to make them suffer too much. I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's back <laughs> to the kind of coercive stuff again, right? Like you're maybe this would have maybe this would have ended early if somebody uh, was like, whoa, wait a second, this hurts, you know, like running out, you know, maybe people would have survived if uh, if they hadn't gone this route. So it is kind of like chemically coercive as opposed to oh. charismatically coercive. But also like if one was to commit a self-immolation, I guess you'd probably want to have some painkillers. Unless you're... Uh, there's a monk who did it, I think, in Vietnam. Oh, sure. There, there's actually, there's a long history of that. Um, that That is, there's actually, that just happened um, in the U.S. back in, I mean, yes. Sorry, listeners, for bringing in sad current events. But uh, back in the U.S., uh, only a few months ago, it was, uh, I believe, a climate change protest. Uh, <gasps> yes! Yeah, it happened. Yes. Uh, and it's one of those things where it wasn't, um, super heavily reported because there is a, a fear of uh, people being inspired to do the same thing, uh, which is understandable. Like you want to mitigate, you want to mitigate harm. And so that's like a journalistic ethics thing. But um, yeah, that, that just happened here. But there, there is a long history of self-immolation as protest, uh, which of course, Father James's uh, experience falls definitively outside the realm of. He's not protesting anything. No, no, it's, um, gosh, it, and that, again, like how we were talking about the cleansing room where it's terrifying mm -hmm. and wonderful to see. Right. I think it's terrifying and wonderful to see people being able to conquer their instincts to get away. To exactly. not fight back. Yeah. Yeah. That, that same quote would kind of apply here. But we learned that the narrator did not want to die. Mm -hmm. And she remembered Father's temple and escaped. And it's the bunker behind the chapel, which that amazes me. She made it this far. And <laughs> she's. God. Yeah. So then you come across three journals. The last journal says you are a coward. Mm-hmm. Which I think the journals are more of her internal monologue rather than yeah. kind of like yeah. the, the reflection on the tape decks. Okay, this part freaked me out. The The door opens. There's a door, and it just opens by itself after you read the last journal entry. This is so creepy. Like, we, we move firmly into the realm of surreal horror here. <laughs> yeah. And that... I don't know if I mentioned it, but that was something I, I kept wondering, am I going to find a body? Am I going mm -hmm. to find people? And there's a lot of creaking whenever you're in different rooms, different um, locations like the community hall and doors after you open them after a while, they'll close by themselves. That freaked me out. 
at least 50% of the time I spun my character around to see if somebody had entered the room. Like it, it, you never stop being spooked by it. It's interesting that they use kind of the semiotics of horror here for a story that is psychologically horrifying, even though you don't have that, uh, that sense of danger to your character avatar. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but they very much use kind of the language of horror in conveying what happened. Yes. I love it. It's so yeah. good. So you take your time, um, explore each room as you go through. It's a doomsday type setup. That's mm -hmm. what I thought of, like those um, end of the world, apocalyptic type. Yeah, classic preppers. prepper bunker setup here. He's got his weapons down here too. So the pathways get darker and more disturbing. And I absolutely adored this kind of storytelling. What did you mm -hmm. think, Chris? I love this. This, oh, this was the cherry on top of the game. Like, you could not come up with a better climax to this story than what we go through here. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't expecting it at all, uh, especially mm -mm. because up to this point, this is kind of where we discover that the person who we're playing as is Lillian. Yes. Uh, up to this point, I had thought that it was a detective. I had thought that maybe it was a historian or something. And it's as soon as you find that note calling you a coward... And then you start going through what is clearly not um, a real space here in the bunker, but you're opening doors and going through memories that did not take place here that I realized, aha, I'm playing as Lillian. I'm seeing her process her trauma from her perspective. Uh, this is just brilliant. This uh, you, you couldn't do better word. than this. Yeah, that is the exact word I would use. It was brilliant. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's so creative and Oh, I just love it. Yeah. So, which, you know, it's interesting to me that there was this bunker, but James did not go to use it himself. Yeah, it's another one of those details that's not super well sketched in. Um, we, we don't know why the cult uh, decided to uh, uh, commit the mass suicide. It, it's a really odd bit of ambiguity to exist in this story, but we don't see what the precipitating incident was. Like, we know mm -hmm. that they were amassing weapons. We know that they uh, murdered Peyton. We, we know all of these little things that suggest that there could have been like a, a Waco-style confrontation or uh, a Jonestown-style confrontation or, um, you know, like a millennialist, like, oh, it's just time for us to kill ourselves, uh, which, which, of course, has happened with some cults. And we don't see that. Like, we don't, we don't actually get what the precipitating incident is. So it's very hard to say what father james thought he would do with these bunkers like it, maybe he just changed over time maybe this is where he thought he'd hole up um if the cult was attacked by the fbi or the atf and and he just decided not to mm -hmm. it's just not sketched in i feel like impression of why this is here the only thing i could think is that he had the mindset of well, now that peyton's gone the fbi is mm -hmm. absolutely going to be coming to this ranch and mm -hmm. i'm you're going to take me dead. I'm not going alive. Yeah. And my flock members are not going alive either. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, <laughs> I wonder if the, 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 the self-immolation and the weapons accumulation are kind of at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it's kind of a result of uh, the game developer wanting to incorporate elements from different real world cults that maybe mm -hmm. don't, exactly dovetail um and and so we do get an element of a cult that was going to fight when the world came for it as well as a cult that was going to commit mass suicide when the world came for it uh I, th those do feel a little bit at odds 
for me. I, I'm not sure what the weapons were for if Father James just decided to commit mass suicide anyway. But I guess that's how Jonestown went. You know, like uh, Jim Jones assassin had his people assassinate like U.S. politicians who came to visit mm -hmm. and then also commit mass suicide. So I, I guess they aren't entirely at odds. It's probably a sense of pride. Like um, maybe it goes back to the um, honor suicide. With... Right. He wanted to die on his own terms. Yes. Yeah. But that is a good point. There really isn't this clear explanation of what, why now, and or maybe I mean I'm, I'm being a little silly. Maybe everybody was really bad at using those semi-automatic weapons. <laughs> 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 he yeah. didn't think they'd be able to stand off very. Well. Exactly. Yeah. The the, the testing <laughs> revealed some unfortunate truths about the flock. <laughs> yeah. Please don't give me a semi-automatic rifle. Yeah. I'd, you know, be more afraid of it than using it. <laughs> But like Chris was talking about the storytelling of the events, you walk through these different doors and the first section, it'll be like a cross with some pictures and then more crosses will be added. And there's one scene where it's tons of crosses with red light. I was very freaked out by that. Real spooky. Yeah. It was very spooky. So the first one is you see scenes of Lillian being interrogated by a detective in regards to the fire. And she talks about people's last moments. She's struggling. The detective's trying to pull information from her, but she's she's dealing with survivor's guilt, like we talked about. Yeah, this is clearly right after the the suicide happened. Mm -hmm. The next one is very poignant, I, I think. Um, there's a, it looks like a little living room setup, and she's talking with her dad, and he's pleading with her. He he's like, "What what did we do? What what led you to join this cult? It I don't understand. Like he's he's worried, but there is a the way he's talking to her is probably not the best way to talk to someone in that right. state. He's not rude, but he's just It's understandable, but sad. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I teared up a bit at this. This is this scene with Lillian talking with her dad is really pretty heartbreaking, mm -hmm. even though you can tell like he's a person who loves her and she's a person who loves him, but they, they can't understand each other here. And he's just he's a bit harsher than you would hope that somebody would be with somebody who'd gone through such a trauma. And I do want to point out when you're going through these scenes, you don't see anybody. You just see props. Yeah. That Another great have. directorial choice. I love it. You just see the scenery. So then there's a scene with a therapist. There's a couch. There's a chair. Lillian has been struggling with survivor's guilt and possibly thoughts of suicide. And mm. I love they address that she went to see a therapist. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, this one I thought was really clever. There's a bar and you're wondering, a bar? Why, why are we going to a bar? Mm -hmm. She is talking to a gentleman named Tim. They're obviously on a date. Mm -hmm. I loved what he said about work. Okay. So he talks about his job and he talks about how it's almost like a fanatical religion mm -hmm. because he's expected to do certain things and he makes very light jokes about it. Yeah. What did you think about that scene? Yeah. I was going to ask you the same question. Um, it, this feels like it could read two different ways. One is, uh, uh, one is that maybe Tim is, is being a little bit accidentally crass and, mm -hmm. um, you know, relating something that is kind of more mundane work with something that uh, is, is very horrifying, which is a, a real lived cult experience. Uh, and, you know, we, we all know people who have done that sort of thing, like made a mm -hmm. comment uh, in jest, but it was a bit insensitive, um, you know, in retrospect. But there's another reading of this uh, that maybe is saying that, that what Tim is saying, 
what Tim is saying actually could be applicable, that, that there is this element of uh, like self-harm through overwork. Uh, I'm inclined to the first reading. It's both simpler and it doesn't feel like this, uh, this work really is about commenting on labor. You know, like it, mm -hmm. it feels like this is so tightly tied to the specifics of cult that making it kind of, uh, making it, having a bit in the ending that turns it into an allegory for overwork uh, feels a little trite. Oh, but I, I can see that too. Like it's, it's very hard to say. I'd be curious to hear what the developer has to say on that. I love that. I didn't even think of that second part. <laughs> I, I could see it either way. I could see it either way. What did you think about this though? I, I, I was kind of like, Ooh, <laughs> he has yeah, no idea. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Because we've, I've flippantly said, oh, this this is just like a cult, all these people who are yep. obsessed with whatever, just in my everyday talk. And I don't mean it, I don't, but I could see how that could be very insensitive. Because I, I guess we assume that it, we don't we don't know anybody who's joined a cult, that it's it's almost like they're the others. We don't. Exactly. Yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of like smaller scale things like that in life. Um, you know, where, where somebody makes kind of a, a little a little comment because they don't they don't know something about mm -hmm. somebody else. And this happens to be like a really large scale one. Uh, mm -hmm. But I mean, I can just think of like like describing some, um, you know, like like describing some being like, oh, this is like a like uh, like like cancerous or something like that. And it mm -hmm. turns out the person you're talking to is like recovering from cancer or something like that. And you thinking like, gosh, that was a terrible thing to say. Like, yes. you know, in a different context, it wouldn't have been harmful. But in this context, it was sort of insensitive. And, and yeah, so that's how I read this too. I'm, I'm with you. Yes, yes. And I'd like to know how long after 1993 this is taking place. Yeah, it's impossible to say, isn't it? Yeah, it's 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 very hard to tell. We don't, because they don't outright say, okay, this is when Lillian talked to the detective. This is no. when she talked to her dad. This is when she saw her therapist. This is when she's going on the date. Because I can't imagine her going on a date like the week after. Mm -mm. <laughs> going. No, this this is def not definitely. It's probably sometime decently after that. Eh? Mm -hmm. So the next scene is a scene with Lillian's car, which is the car we saw at the beginning. And there's a voicemail of uh, A+. plus on the realistic voicemail voice. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Please leave a message. Tim is trying to call her. He's worried about her. He can't reach her. It's You're wondering what's what's going on. Were, were you worried that, did you have any kind of thoughts about this or did you think? Yeah, uh, she she deletes the voicemail. She doesn't respond to it. Uh, and it, it's, that, it's that bit where she deletes it. My heart sank when she deleted the voicemail. And I was thinking like, oh my goodness, is she going to commit suicide due to all of this survivor's guilt and what she's gone through? Like, I, I really had this kind of heart sinking moment when we when we see her delete the voicemail. Oh, so that's the last scene. You can turn around and you can leave the bunker and it goes back to being normal. There are no mm -hmm. more creepy crosses with red lights behind them. Yes. But when you see the chapel, it's present day, so it's burned, mm -hmm. it's in shambles. Lillian starts reflecting on her time and the cult. Was there anything that she said or anything that happened in this instance that stuck out to you? Um, no, funny enough, I, I just played this section last night and nothing about this monologue uh, sticks out to me. It, it struck me as her reminiscing about a lot of the stuff that we had already seen with more mm -hmm. specifics. 
So this particular bit didn't didn't really stick with me. How about you? I noticed the dawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. See, that's what stuck out to me. I think because we we put the puzzle pieces together. So now we're just absorbing. Right. We know so much already, but then you see the dawn breaking over the ranch. So her cell phone rings when you walk outside of the chapel and it's Tim. He's he's worried about her, obviously. Right. So I'm assuming they're in a relationship or married, something. They they're together. They're right. have they have a strong bond. And she says there are some things that she needs to tell him. And then she, the phone disappears. You, you do actually see the cell phone. That is, you don't see your hand, but you see the cell phone pop up. I thought that yeah, was that was a surprising cool. choice because I thought this was all taking place in in the mid nineteen nineties. And that cell phone, I, I think it's a smartphone, isn't it? Like it. Yeah, it looks it, like an iPhone. Yeah, it's interesting that that it makes us realize that this journey that we've been going on is actually taking place, probably uh, potentially twenty years after the events of uh, Perfect Heaven. I'd love so if she just graduated from college. She was probably in her early twenties, so she's probably mm -hmm. in her early forties, yep. mid forties by now. Yeah. And so after she talks with Tim, there's a repeat of the very same dialogue from the very opening of the game. I'm not gonna read it again, it's pretty long, but it's where she's talking <laughs> about I'm first met Anne. I met Anne first, waiting for the bus, mm -hmm. blah blah blah. Exactly. And then it goes to the credits. So that's sagebrush. That's mm -hmm. So, so Chris, what would what would you like to say about this game? I thought this game was extraordinary. I'm I'm so happy. I'm happy that it's uh, it's as short and tight as it is. I really wish more games were shorter, and I think this is just the right length to make the impact that it wants to make to say what it has to say. It gives just enough information about all of the characters to make them specific, not archetypes, but also leaves enough. Uh, ambiguous that you can fill in some of the details yourself. Like some of some of the less important details aren't there. And I think something being a little underwritten is sometimes better than it being overwritten, as long as it can still convey its central point, which this does. Um, as far as like minor drawbacks, it it's very dark. As we talked about, it's a little it's a little hard to see sometimes. I think that is still probably the right creative choice for this mm -hmm. because it it contributes to the mood and and what's going on with Lillian's perspective um but it it does just on a purely mechanical level make it hard to play sometimes similarly um the items being hard to interact with using a joystick those are some really minor kind of nitpicky things but but outside of that like this is kind of a 10 out of 10 game like it, it accomplishes exactly what it sets out to do which is like this gets across to me the, the terrifying realities of how people end up in these situations and what the consequences are to them, not just in terms of that that last terrible self-immolation, but what they all went through in the process. Like this is oh. just, it's heartbreaking to read about what these people went through. And it's not, it's sympathetic. It, it's not, it doesn't make them out to be caricatures or evil or anything like that. Like Father James comes off very badly. But pretty much everybody else in this, no matter what horrible things they did, you understand how they ended up there. It's it is a cascading series of tragedies, and I think it conveys that perfectly. You know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. What about you, Celeste? This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, not so much with cults, but 
I've read about it on Reddit. Um, I have male friends who make me wonder this. Do people, why do there, there seems to be a huge sense of loneliness and I'm not saying it's just mm-hmm. now in 2022, it's obviously been the case forever. I mean, the, right. these cults have been around before I was even born, but what can we do as a society to help people? I mean, I, I know that people, first of all, people have to recognize that there's a problem, that they're missing something. They have to want to get help. They have to have the resources. It's, mm-hmm. but I've had male friends open up to me, you know, especially if they don't have a partner, you know, sure. they'll, they'll ask my advice and it, as much as I'm happy to help them, it also makes me worry for them. Yeah, this is such a huge problem. Um, I I have no idea how that kind of thing gets fixed. Um, particularly, it's it's very it's very hard to fix on a macro scale. Like what what impacts a sense of loneliness? What impacts a person? being on their own or, or subject to these kind of malign forces, be they cults or substance abuse or, uh, you know, militias or violent internet communities, you know, whatever the case may be, there are any number of things that are kind of waiting to, to take advantage of somebody who feels lonely or directionless. And um, like there are people, there are plainly people who experience that and come out the other side healthily, you know, people, uh, certainly, uh, like religious organizations are, are, are a great place that, that people go to, to find a sense of belonging and do good in the world, you know, to building houses and helping their, their communities and, and finding this sense of place there, or, um, you know, it's, it's hardly unique to, to religion. Uh, but, you know, political groups, non-toxic political groups, you know, folks who, who want to work to mutual aid organizations want to fundraise for their communities who want to to try to protect one another and lift each other up and everything um like there there are lots of good community outlets that bring people together i i'm you know i'm just spitballing here i i have no idea like i i confront this as often as every other person in i was going to say america but the world you know this this is a problem the world over this isn't even uh, like unique to our culture, uh, loneliness is is a really tough nut to crack. It's like it it is it is a global phenomenon. I guess born largely of the fact that we're we're kind of uh, communal creatures, right? Like humans mm-hmm. as a species are are community driven, and when we don't have that community, uh, our our health suffers for it. One hundred percent, and someone has to be willing to step out and seek community, yeah. right? Unfortunately, and, and that that's half of the battle, I think. A lot of people are very shy and maybe they don't have enough confidence. Mm-hmm. So I guess I guess the uh, thing I wanna say is be kind to people. You, you yes. really don't know what people are going through. I'm, I'm not saying if someone's being cruel to you, you have to let them keep punching you, but <laughs> yeah. It, my mom was a kindergarten teacher for 33 years and she always would say the kids who misbehaved and acted the most unloving were the ones who needed the most love. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Again, not excusing them from terrorizing another student, but it, it would give her, a, she was, she was able to approach the situation with a little bit more compassion and wanting to help them. 
Um, it's a fine distinction between empathy and sympathy. Like it, it is important to be able to be empathetic and helpful, even if one doesn't um, agree with the actions of another person. Yes, absolutely. Chris, did you notice we have a uh, Ed popping in virtually? I noticed that he has a bunch of bullet points down here in the notes. <laughs> Hello, Ed. If, Hello, oh, you know, I don't know if he can hear us. I guess he's not on the recording, so he can't hear us. Maybe he'll hear us later. But um, I, yeah, I see we got some notes from him here. I'm yeah, sad so I didn't get to meet Ed. You know, wow. I've, I've listened to him on so many shows. <laughs> well, we'll have to have you on another Exactly, episode. sure. <laughs> yeah. But he just, he brought some bullets up and maybe he can talk about them. I'll just go through them quickly. He said it was an interesting game for a walking sim. Since it deals with a cult, he was surprised by how the story was put together. The sad part was the emotionless narration that made it feel dull and eye-rolling. Ed, that's a hot take. Ed, I disagree with you so much. <laughs> I wish you were here to tell us why you thought it was yeah. emotionless. <laughs> the second, the clues to solving some of the puzzles were downright unfair, specifically the farm puzzle. Uh-huh. With no way to keep track of notes, you can easily be searching for minutes trying to solve the solution. Those are some of my negatives. Yeah, you know, just I, I don't want to I don't want to talk over uh, Ed here, so to speak. But uh, that that is an observation that didn't occur to me until he wrote this in here. Is that having uh, a thing in the menu that collected the notes would mm -hmm. have been a nice uh, nice addition to this? That Maybe it's a, a programming quirk. That's a great point. Yeah, like I think in Resident Evil, you can go back and look at the different notes that you collect. Yes, like 99% of the time, and I was re I, why this is in my mind is that I did play one Resident Evil, I want to say, where they didn't have that, and it drove me batty. Um, I, I got so frustrated that I knew that there, I, I don't, shucks, I think it's Resident Evil 6 or maybe Resident okay. Evil Revelations. It's one of the 2010s ones. It doesn't collect the notes, which is a real problem when you need to refer to them for puzzle solutions, as Ed has noted here with uh, Sagebrush. Great observation from, from both of you. I didn't even think about saving the notes. That's great. Yeah. Uh, to say the least, the game could have been longer if they built on characters and had various voices to add to the other names. I know it was going for a Heaven's Gate feel. Mm -hmm. and, and like we mentioned earlier, it's a one-man show, so he was limited on the voice acting, but I understand. Sure. Um, he, sh he shocked no one who was there actually read the Bible or knew of it to question the insanity <laughs> Father James was preaching. <laughs> good, good point, Ed. Not a lot of Bible scholars in the Perfect Heaven cult. I guess not. Um, all in all, I did enjoy my time with it. It just could have been more. With that, everyone, I love you all and I'll see you next time. But he has an editorial for more opinions on this game because it's a question he wants to ask is why do cults need people in their older age to function and is it because of their comprehension of logic or wanting to belong what separates this from gang culture uh heaven perfect heaven seems to be a mixture of ages yeah i tend to think of cults being oriented towards younger folks um i, I could be wrong about that but i there's no real reason for me to have come to that conclusion. Um, I, I just, I tend to think of cults as a rule being like perfect heaven in terms of pulling in people who are rudderless or directionless or lack mm -hmm. community and that sort of thing. And I, I guess I just tend to think of more settled people as having more of those things uh, later mm -hmm. in life. I, I don't think that's true. I think particularly um, they're, you know, again, kind of to pull in, <laughs> To, to pull from a wider pool, like there is a huge problem of um, like the elderly experiencing loneliness and being separated from uh, all of those community ties. However, I think that um, 
uh, like cults inherently um, are, are, are very mobile. They require you generally to, to move to them. Like there are a bunch of these weird little um, logistical reasons, I think, that they that they don't tend to attract people who are less uh, mobile. That said, the gang culture thing, I think, is a really good uh, note here because I would say that is very much um, uh, along the same lines as far as um, attracting folks who might otherwise not have a sense of community. Like gang culture also pulls in folks who, um, uh, you know, maybe maybe they have a tough family situation. Maybe they don't have a lot of friends outside of that experience. Um, it, it gives people a sense of belonging. Like there are a lot of um, a lot of good reasons why people uh, join up with gangs, and and so I think there is a lot of uh, overlap there. Uh, kind of like the militia group thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, militia groups are are very gang like as well. You know, it it is. It's uh, cults, militia groups, gangs, like these are all uh, you know, terrorist cells even. You know, these are all scenarios where um, there is kind of a malign influence acting on the loneliness of individuals. Very well said, Chris. Thank you for that. <laughs> that uh, there's a quote, I think it's an African proverb that says, a child not accepted by the warmth of the village will burn it down, I think. Yeah, woof. I, I've heard, yeah, I want to say I've heard that before. That That's a really, that is a well-observed proverb. And I think that's something that scares me because um, even though I don't work in a school, mm -hmm. with things going on in the news, sometimes I worry just going to Walmart or my local grocery store. It, it kind of freaks me out that there could be someone who I don't know and who doesn't know me who's just hell-bent on making other people miserable and could harm me or my loved ones. Yeah, profoundly terrifying. I think that's uh, something that, that certainly uh, we, we all live with in the United States is that um, the fear of that kind of thing. And so much of that, again, is born out of a lack of community, a lack of belonging and, um, you know, a desire to lash out with no other kind of um, outlet. You know, like that that person could join a cult, they could join a uh, like a terrorist organization or, you know, they, they could lash out through just uh, just singular violence against uh, their community. You know, that 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 loneliness does create all kinds of uh, really, really scary consequences. We got really deep. <laughs> <laughs> Sagebrush we, makes you think. It, it really does. And it brings up, gosh, it brings up a lot. Um, the best $10 you could spend on the Switch eShop. I fully agree. Um, <laughs> so I guess, I mean, I guess this would be my PSA. Reach out to your friends and mm -hmm. your loved ones. I mean, you can't save the world. And it's very easy to get a savior complex where you feel like, oh, I have to help everybody. I have to help this person. I'm it this person. Yeah. It really does. Um, if you feel burned out or if you feel like you need help, um, the United States just released 988, I believe is the number. Yeah, sure enough. Yeah, isn't that nice? Yes. I so, hope we got that number right. I hope. <laughs> look it up. Oh, oh not, up. Not, yeah, listeners, look it up. Oh, okay. Yes, 988. It's the Suicide and Crisis go. Lifeline. Yeah. Um, I, you don't have to call it strictly for suicide. It's um, if you're feeling emotional distress, you don't have to call 911. Uh, this is meant to connect you with counselors and they can provide other resources. But. It, I know it's hard, and, and especially if you are someone who 
struggles with like a sense of pride or you're embarrassed, mm -hmm. you're not alone. <laughs> that's everybody that's... belongs somewhere. Yeah. You know, like you, you aren't born into this world, not belonging anywhere. Like you, you, you're, you're important to somebody and you're probably important to a lot of people, you know? Yes. So if you, if you feel like you're involved with something very dangerous to yourself or others, or you're struggling to feel your own sense of self-worth, I know it's hard to, to see. I've dealt with oh, bad feelings before, right, but yeah. things do get better. Please reach out to someone. I don't, you know, if it's a friend, a family member, um, somebody, so that they, if they can't help you directly, they could at least maybe connect you with someone. Yeah, I agree. Those resources are there. And um, something that I think when folks are in um, in a better place where they are uh, maybe able to, to get outside themselves, obviously not not a person in crisis, but uh, find ways to connect with your community. Uh, there are um, one of the one of the best ways to find a sense of belonging is finding a way to help other people in your community. You, you build a lot of bonds there. And, uh, you know, be it be it a mutual aid organization, be it, uh, you know, some kind of like local charity work, be it a, a church community or, or a, you know, a, a, like a synagogue or really anything, any, any kind of um, there are just a lot of opportunities to kind of contribute to your local community and, and in the process, increase your own sense of belonging. It's, it's a good way to get outside yourself. Thank you for that, Chris. Is is there anything else you'd like to say about? No, I don't think so. No, no, it's <laughs> it's a heavy game. You know, it's a lot to take in, but um, I think it's a it's a really valuable uh, perspective improving piece. It 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 does what um, it does what the best art does, which is that it gets you outside of your own experience and helps you understand the experiences of others. We're, we're all on this spinning rock together. We might as well get along and help one another. Yeah. Well, Chris, where can people find you if they'd like to connect with you? Yeah, good question. Um, I am, uh, I host the Franchise Festival podcast with my co-hosts Spencer and Hamilton. The Franchise Festival podcast has its own website at franchisefestivalpodcast.com. It's also on Twitter under the handle at franchise underscore best franchise festival was taken uh, <laughs> and uh, I am on Twitter at the handle at breakman 90 that's b-r-a-k-e-m-a-n nine zero and I'd be uh, be happy to connect with anybody on there I I think people should honestly you post some very thought-provoking tweets and some fun light-hearted ones I really <laughs> enjoy the franchise festival podcast and I noticed you're very active with interacting with people on Twitter. You like to encourage people and uplift them. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Isn't that the best part of it? Like, you know, people get down on social media and that's understandable. You know, there's a lot of toxicity there, but it's also a really great opportunity to, you know, try and make everybody feel good about themselves. Like your people are putting their sel themselves out there and, you know, creating content and, you know, it's just it's, it's to to our discussion, a, a nice place to, as you said, uplift people. Uh, Twitter is how we met. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So thank you so much for taking the time. Um, I'm sorry we talked before for like, you know, half an hour. And then <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> and good luck with the recording tonight with Franchise Festival. That's thank you. so exciting. And everyone, you can follow me on Twitter at FairyCrypt. And you can also go to BossRush.net to listen to other 
Um, I've almost said 1v1, but that is another podcast episode, other Talk the Walk episodes. And we look forward to hearing what you think about Sagebrush. So until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you.